Airline Pilot Guy, episode 340. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in a North Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 12th of September, 2018. In today's episode, unmanned towers landing at the wrong airport, almost, wheels falling off airplanes, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, Uncle Jeff. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on, flight 340 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's a weekly aviation podcast where we talk about stuff in aviation news and we answer your great feedback. And joining me today to help me from his studio in England, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, currently Captain for an international airline based in London. Captain Nick. Well, hi, Jeff, and uh, it's great to be on this marvelously numbered show. Isn't it fantastic? Been waiting for this for ages. The uh, APG 340 show. Fantastic. And I'm sure that you've prepared something special just for this particular number on today's show. We're looking forward to that. That was it. And also, (laughs) joining us from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia. Barbecue master, bourbon, scotch, vodka, connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat skipper, and last but not least, captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Dana. Captain Dana. Hey, guys. Great to be back. Another fantastic episode. 340. How honorable is that? What a great number in honor of Captain Nick over there. Looking forward to another great show as always. I am as well. All right. So, how is everybody doing today? Oh, pretty damn good. Fantabulous. Wonderful. Okay. I made up that uh, word, by the way. Fantabulous? Yep. Okay. That's like, uh, what's the uh, one that uh, Elf always says? Uh, hum- not humongous, but... Uh, oh, shoot. Elf? Like when the he's, show Elf? When he's... Uh, yeah, the Elf. Not Alf, but Elf. You know the uh, the the Christmas show, and he, he's in the in the bathroom stall, and he he looks over and he sees the uh, the large toilet, and he says, "It's ah shoot, I can't think of it." Somebody will help us in the chat room. <laughs> um, yeah, Huma, not humongous, but it's like a form of humongous. Oh well, gy, ginormous. That's it. There you go. Nearly, nearly, nearly humongous. No humongous? Yes. Now, 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 boys. Now, we're not talking about those things. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about a toilet. Yes, we are. Nick, not anatomy. All right. Um, 
anyway, uh, so who wants to go first with uh, keeping us all informed about what you have been doing this past oh, week? Oh, can I go? Yes. Daniel. All right. It's been fun. I've done nothing, so it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously, I, I forget to go first because it's just going to be real short. <laughs> Get it's you just, out of the way. Yeah, out of the way. I've been on, on call and uh, we are very well staffed. I don't know what this uh, hurricane is going to do as far as next week goes. Uh, but right now, I am enjoying some uh, quality time at home, getting some projects done around the house, getting ready for uh, a visit or two this coming weekend. And it looks uh, like we're ready to go. So that's uh, short and sweet. And oh, just uh, in honor of uh, Liz's arrival this weekend in my glass is Crown Select made in Canada. So looking oh. forward to that. Very nice. Very nice. Yes. As uh, well, we may as well uh, talk about uh, two of the items that you just mentioned, Dana. Uh, number one, we're very excited. We're having a, an Atlanta meetup because Nick is going to be in town on Friday and we're going to have a meetup at uh, the Max Loggers something grill and wood wood burning grill and bar or something like that. And uh, I don't know what the formal name is, but Max Loggers, look it up. And that's going to be at uh, 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. Friday night. And if you're in the Atlanta area, we look forward to seeing you there. And uh, also this weekend, um, our producer, Liz, is flying down from Toronto and uh, going to pick her up on Friday from the airport. And we're going to she's going to be with us at our meetup as well as Dr. Steph. So the whole gang, the whole crew will be present here in Atlanta. And then uh, we're, we're having this little retreat the next day. So looking forward to that. Now, on the other hand, you mentioned this other word that begins with an H. Yeah, I was going to say Hurricane Hurricane Willing on Saturday. Hurricane Florence is uh, still out in the Atlantic. It's heading toward the southeastern United States. They're not exactly sure yet exact uh, how it's going to track. And uh, we're hoping that it won't affect our weather this weekend here in Atlanta or anybody's flight uh, coming in. So we'll see. Uh, but I have a feeling that uh, regardless of we have bad weather or not, we're going to have a great time Well, as long as we're all here. Together. And I know Dr. <laughs> Steph's not here, but with any luck, they might cancel clinic and she could get out of town, get out of Dodge early. Oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. But we'll see. Yeah. Or it could go the other way and they cancel her flight. Completely. Yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> see, I'm trying to be Mr. Positive here. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm trying but, to, you know, you, she can always drive. Right? I'm usually the guy that's Mr. Negative and I'm trying to be Mr. Positive. <laughs> okay. Good point. Yeah. Good so, she's uh, not flying okay. herself though. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. That's probably a good decision. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad she made that decision early. Uh, Captain Nick, um, what have you been up to, sir? Have you been flying a little bit? Uh, yeah. And meeting up? I did a trip uh, to Washington, which uh, was very nice. Yes, had a little bit of a meetup there, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. But uh, saw some of our uh, really fine uh, regulars uh, who are frequent contributors and uh, great friends of the show there. That was fun. Um, and, of course, coming out to Atlanta on Friday, looking forward to the meetup. That's going to be great fun. But please forgive me if I fall asleep in my beer because it'll have been a long day. Um, and then uh, a little bit later on this month, I'm going to meet uh, about a, a week today. I'm going to meet Vernon, who is uh, Vernon Tyron, who is across from the States, uh, 
Um, one of our listeners, uh, he and his wife, Ruth, are uh, in the UK, and uh, they'll be, in fact, they're currently, I think, on the Isle of Wight. They'll be flying home. And I said uh, I'd meet them uh, as they sort of break their journey between the ferry that they use to get off the Isle of Wight and their train journey to Gatwick Airport. Going to meet them for lunch, uh, take them to a little pub uh, on in the countryside on the coast that they will, I hope, enjoy. So th- that'll be a, a little mini meetup. Uh, Vernon's a uh, retired CFI and former air traffic controller. And now I, I guess yes, he's from the uh, from the state of Colorado, ah. if I remember correctly. And I believe it's Vernon Tryon. Tryon. Is that how you pronounce that? Did I, I think so. Tyron. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no, it no, is Tyron. it's T-R-Y-O-N. So you right. I think I just mispronounced that. OK, excellent. I don't think I've heard him actually pronounce it himself, but he sent us uh, he's sent us a bunch of uh, feedback in the past, including audio feedback. So excellent. Well, I'm sure we'll have a uh, a, a nice lunch. Uh, I think this one we'll have time for. But uh, well, that's cool. Yeah, it is. So and that's the following week. But uh, really, uh, honestly, I'm looking forward to uh, Atlanta. And fingers crossed that uh, um, that young lady who's hurtling across the ocean towards. Uh, your East Coast is not going to upset things too much over the weekend. Oh, you mean Miss Florence? Yes. I like the color flow. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I'm, I just got a ding and I just got a message in my ACARS and said, Florence, you've been rerouted. Contact crew scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Oh, good, good job. Yeah. Well, Finally, no. we get a reroute. That's a good one. <laughs> I like it. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the meetup that you had in Washington on Saturday, Nick, at the uh, something about a muscle bar. Or yeah, something. yeah. We went to a, a gym that, uh, you know, we oh, okay. were working out and, and we worked out for a while there. It was really good. Okay. Shall I play the audio from Please. that? Please. Okay. Here we go. It's the final countdown. Hi, Jeff. It's uh, Captain Nick here. Uh, it's pretty noisy here. Uh, we're in a fabulous place um, in D.C. Uh, it's the uh, St. Arnold's Muscle Bar. And it's full of very muscular people, including uh, this bloke who I've just dragged out of the toilet, who uh, it keeps going on about um, slack. I don't quite understand what it's all about, but... Let me introduce to you someone who uh, is a complete stranger to us all, the wonderful Hillel. Greetings, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome from the bathroom. Um, glad to be out, just drying my hands, and uh, happy birthday to Sir Nick. Um, one more year, and he's done flying. That's pretty amazing, and we're glad to spend that time with him today because we know there's not going to be another day like it. So uh, really nice to see the folks that came out, F.O. Craig and his new bride and Robert, or sometimes known as Richard Fairbairn. And it's been a really nice time. We had a lot of time, fun time talking to each other, um, just hanging out. It's always good to see everybody. And um, best of luck to Nick on his next adventure one year from today. Well, that is very kind of you. I didn't expect that at all. That's ever so kind. And the best of luck to you, sir, on your adventures, which we will hear about in due course, I'm sure, because I am convinced they'll be a great success. In the meantime, not a lot of flying, hello? 
Other than Oshkosh, a little over a month ago, there haven't been a lot of flying. I'm just keeping myself current and keeping the plane up to speed with everything that needs to happen. And I uh, have been keeping myself chair flying or hangar flying by listening to APG and talking to other folks about flying. And mostly it's uh, a, a labor of love. So I'm doing a lot of labor so that I can do the things that I love. You're a lovely man and we think you're marvelous. Thank you very much indeed. Who else we got here? Well, of course, we've got uh, Richard uh, or Robert or Hamish, depending upon uh, what you like to call him. Uh, how about uh, Ro- Dick? Just don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Shirley, you don't mean that. I do mean that. <laughs> okay, Dick. <laughs> First of all, thank you very much indeed for uh, coming around to the hotel, picking me up tonight. Great to see you. I know you got to dash off. But uh, anything for the community? Hey, everybody. uh, Keep flying. Keep the blue side up. And let's see how many cliches we can come up with in 10 seconds. What do you think? (laughs) No. Cheers. uh, Have another beer, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) That's that's fine. Uh, I'm completely brain dead, having worked all day. Uh, You know, it's the equivalent of getting up at 1 a.m. in uh, Washington time. And it's now... uh, It's about when I went to bed. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> yeah, all right, enough of that. Anyway, um, uh, Robert, thank you very much indeed. Robert very kindly gave me the most fabulous gift of uh, whiskey, a very special whiskey, which I will try when I get home, uh, because it's probably not best if I drink it all tonight, since I want to get home. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll come back with a report on that, but thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Nice to see you, Nick. It's lovely to see you. And we've got first officer Craig here, who has been telling me all about his fantastic flying, but more importantly, his wonderful honeymoon. Yes, uh, I, won't do, uh, I won't divulge too many details about that honeymoon, but uh, New Zealand was wonderful, and it was a wonderful time uh, Ashley and I had down there. And, uh, coming off the high of the honeymoon, but uh, it was great seeing Nick again, meeting Robert for the first time and seeing Hillel, and uh, glad to have... Uh, brought Ashley along for this wonderful meal, great beer, and uh, even better camaraderie. And uh, things seem to be looking good in, uh, what do you call your airline? Uh, We'll call it uh, Acme Junior for now. I won't uh, give the actual airline name, but it's looking like uh, upgrade uh, will be, upgrade train will be probably mid next year. So uh, looking forward to that and uh, earning that extra stripe and uh, not going to lie, I'm looking forward to the pay that comes along with it. You look a very happy man, and I'm sure it's not just because of all the flying. It's because of this wonderful lady here. Now, we've got a rare occurrence here. We've got one of the lovely ladies that uh, is associated with the pilots uh, that I often speak to, and this is the wonderful Ashley. Hi, everybody. Okay, Ashley. Now, you've just come back from a fabulous trip in uh, to New Zealand. Uh, on another of the shows we listen to, we hear a bit about their passenger experience. So what was it like to fly for like 350 hours to get out to New Zealand? I mean, it was quite eventful. I mean, we basically had to bolt down the, what is it, the, what is that called, the gate? Bolt down the gate to get to our plane. So I would say, thankfully we made it, but... You had a real, real nightmare getting on the last airplane. I mean, how many flights did you take to get to L.A.? It took us four flights to get to L.A. 
And, and that was, you were continually swapping aircraft and trying to get there because you knew if you missed your LA flight, you weren't going to New Zealand? Exactly. And I mean, it was quite honestly a headache, but I mean, that's the price you pay for being a standby passenger. I guess at that point you were thinking to you that your new husband probably should have paid for a full price ticket? Um, yeah, but I mean, we eventually had to in the third, I think it was the third flight. We had to pay for a Southwest flight, which sucked because we were getting flights cheaper, but oh well. <laughs> We've all been there and done that. Anyway, I'm so pleased you got to New Zealand in the end. What was it like? It was nice. It was in the 50s, so quite cool, but, you know, comfortable. Actually, it's interesting you say it's in the 50s, because I always thought it was a bit like the 1950s in New Zealand. Wait, what? A bit like the 1950s. It's a bit bit like in a time zone there. Yes, it's a little dated, but, I mean, there's much love to be had in New Zealand. I mean, just the scenic views, the people are good. It's very wholesome, very homey, and you get a lot to you get a lot of diversity in the whole country itself because you get the east which is different, which is more country like, then you get the south that's more like reminds me of Greece if you've ever been, and then west is more feels tropical, so it's like Hawaii-ish and then north. So, yeah, very very delightful. Excellent. So glad you had a wonderful time and welcome to the APG community. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Excellent. Okay, Jeff, that's it from uh, the Muscle Bar. I I kind of expected to have people pumping iron here and uh, drinking protein drinks, but actually it's been absolutely delicious. Uh, The beer has been delicious and the mussels have been even more delicious. Everything has been fantastic. Great company. And uh, it's time to say goodbye to us and on to you, Jeff. Goodbye and see you in Slack. See you. (laughs) Thanks, Hillel. All the best, Jeff. Back to you in the studio. Wow, I think that that gym has like a bar or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, maybe the recording should have been earlier in the evening because that was pretty freaking funny. <laughs> that was hysterical. A lot of difference, actually. <laughs> that was good. I could tell you all were having a good time. We, we had a good time. I just had no idea yeah. how uh, strong those <laughs> that we were quaffing. Uh, if if you want to hear something like that, like, but me doing it, uh, <laughs> episode two hundred toward the end there. Uh, not only will you hear me like trying to talk, yeah. but uh, I'm actually you know bawling like a like a anyway yeah but it was nice to have those fine folk there to celebrate the fact that i have just cracked uh my final year as a professional pilot so uh i'm now into uh the final countdown and uh you know it's uh, getting closer all the time excellent yeah less than a year to go then yep yep it was a year on the eighth so someone can do the math for me it's now the 12th so three hundred well, you know, too bad they'll have like a like an days. app that's, oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted Dana. No, Go ahead, Dana. You, if somebody can do the math, that's 360 days. Yeah. That's too bad that they don't have a, an app that uh, gives yeah, you like a countdown. Yeah, if I had my phone with me, I would be able to. <laughs> don't, don't, for, don't worry about it. it. <laughs> it's less than 365 days. That's for sure. 
Anyway, well, that was awesome. Um, thank you for recording that. Uh, it's oh, always good to hear those it was voices. Lovely to see those fine folks and enjoy a bit with them. You are, you know, it's again as we always say, you know, getting together with the community is just really the best part of doing what we do here. This is just something that we do every week, just to keep it all together. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. Looks like uh, Dr. Steph has made it home. She'll be joining us shortly. Uh, but in the meantime, the meetups uh, happened. Uh, in addition to your muscle bar meetup in Washington, Captain Nick, uh, something that had been planned for quite some time by the lovely Rebecca, uh, or also known as Becky, uh, kind of organized this meetup uh, a little bit more somber than uh, the muscle bar. Uh, we met at uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. That was the site of the uh, United Flight 93 that crashed, uh, and that was uh, during the uh, hijacking terrorism uh, event on uh, the 11th of September uh, 2001. Today we're recording the show on the 12th, so it was yesterday, 17 years ago. I can't believe it's already been that many years since that uh, fatal day. Uh, but uh, we... Uh, uh, well, I had an, a layover in Dulles, uh, Washington, and uh, I think I may explain exactly all the details of this in the audio feedback that we recorded after we uh, had spent some time at the Flight 93 Memorial. And if not, I'll fill in the uh, details after we listen to this audio clip. Please help. I'm being kidnapped in a van somewhere in Pennsylvania by some lady that keeps telling us to turn left. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, we are in Shanksville, PA, and uh, this is the APG Flight 93. Well, we had nothing to do with Flight 93. The Flight 93 Memorial. Some of us uh, APGers got together today. In 3.9 miles, we're going to be doing something, apparently. We have the... Uh, GPS system telling us where to go. Anyway, uh, so yeah, we're we're just leaving the uh, the park, the Flight 93 Memorial Park, I guess is the formal name. And um, so it, it, this has been a great trip. Um, I flew into Dulles International today, earlier today, and then uh, went to the hotel and got picked up by this wonderful young man. Uh, some of you may know him as Richard. Some of you may know him as Robert Fairbairn. I'm not sure if he even knows what his name is. But anyway, uh, he picked me up and we went out to the Leesburg Airport and uh, got in a Cessna 172 and flew from Leesburg, VA, to Shanksville, actually Somerset County, PA. And uh, when we arrived at the airport, it was a lovely flight. Uh, about an hour long. And then when we were arrived there, we saw two uh, obviously good-looking, smart-looking people. So they, we figured they must be part of the APG community. And it was uh, the person who actually came up with this great idea for a meetup, Rebecca, or Becky, uh, if you want to be casual. Uh, and uh, Becky, why don't you say hello to the APG community and tell them about our little venture today? Sure. Hello, APG community. Um, so we lured Captain Jeff here at the risk of his life, flying him, driving him as like planes, trains, and audio automobiles um, to come and take a look at the memorial. And if you haven't seen it, um, 
curious as to what everyone else's impressions are. I'm the only one that was here before, which was something that I didn't know until today. Um, so hopefully when this is aired, it'll be the week of September 11th and we'll have some different thoughts maybe than usual. And I'm like to thank Captain Jeff and Robert and Arlen for um, coming today. Thanks. Why don't you hand it to Do you have a script for me or do I just need to make it up as I go along? Okay, all right, fair enough. Hello, everybody. This is Richard, Robert. I'll just change my name every week as we log into the uh, YouTube channel and we'll see if anybody can keep up. Uh, I'll take suggestions. You can reach out to I don't know what my name is at airlinepilotguy.com and uh, we'll, uh, we'll sort that out, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I picked up Jeff and took a little hop in a nice little Skyhawk with a malfunctioning audio panel, which was a nice little surprise and came up and had a look around the rather sobering but uh, impressive Flight 93 Memorial out here in beautiful central Pennsylvania countryside. Um, and now we're, we're on our way back to the airport to take a trip back toward D.C. And uh, maybe we'll be able to talk to each other this time and uh, discuss what we've seen. But uh, thanks to, uh, to Becky for putting this together. It's been a, been a fun day so far and uh, sobering but interesting. So I think that the audio system is not going to work on the way back because I really think that Robert really didn't want to talk to me for an hour flying up here so i think that he purposely made it so that we couldn't talk to each other yeah it's gonna fix itself once we land at leesburg i bet anyway uh here is arlen he is driving the uh apg apg or van the loser cruiser i don't have a loser cruiser anymore and becky has taken over for me so uh we're in becky's uh loser cruiser but we have a professional driver driving us right now let's see if he can actually talk into a microphone and drive at the same time hi apg community this is arlen Souter, and i really don't know where i'm going here i hope i end up at the right place in 0.5 miles i need to turn we'll tell you we'll scream at you that well yeah i muted the the woman who was telling me so now i don't know where to go it's, it's up there somewhere i nominate jeff bitch and betty for the day <laughs> So this is crazy. I didn't know I was coming today, but because um, I thought it was yesterday, and then last night I saw it was today, and I was just all confused. And I had off today, so I thought, hey, I can actually make this. And um, so, yeah, I hopped in my buggy and came down. Um, it's been, been a wonderful time, uh, very sobering. Um, yeah, I better make this turn here. Right here? Right here. Okay. So I'm trying to do two things at once, and I don't use well. I don't multitask very well. But um, no, it's been a, a really good time. I'm glad I came, and uh, look forward to uh, hearing from anyone else who's making a meetup. Uh, really enjoyed it. So I'll talk to you later. You did very well, Arlen. Until right now, when we almost <laughs> pulled in front of a car. <laughs> ah! No, he. Uh, you multitask very well. We just won't tell your wife that. Um, yeah, because most women think that we can't multitask. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, as everybody has reflected upon, it is a very sobering memorial, obviously, because uh, it was a tragedy uh, that these terrorists 
uh, hijacked this airplane and uh, ended up killing 40 innocent people. And uh, it's a it's very well done, uh, very moving memorial. And, you know, we probably could have spent another several hours there just taking it all in. Unfortunately, we didn't have that much uh, time to do that. But uh, I um, yeah, if you're ever in this area of the country, please, you know, make sure you make a trip here to uh, the Flight 93 Memorial because it's uh, definitely worth going to. And uh, with that, and thank you, Becky, for. Um, being persistent and saying we need to do a meetup here and we did it and uh, thank you so much for all the planning uh, Robert thank you so much for your uh, help in carting me up here you know, we were going to drive initially and then he said why don't we fly and I went oh that's even better Who's Robert, Robert. Uh, oh yeah sure. whatever the guys Richard wait a minute I'm so confused anyway Mr. Fairbairn and uh, yeah, and Arlen, it was a very nice meeting you and uh, for driving all the way down, like two and a half hour drive from where he lives in Pennsylvania. And same thing with Becky, another uh, several hour drive uh, to get here. But uh, just wish we had more time to spend together and have dinner or something like that. But uh, I think that we're we're kind of pressed to get back, uh, get the airplane back to Leesburg. So that is it from Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Yes. So, again, that was our after our visit to the absolutely beautiful Flight 93 Memorial Park. Uh, we had a Becky had arranged for us a, a very thorough uh, interview, not interview, but um, tour of the uh, park by uh, Ranger John and. Yeah, we had a, uh, I mean, it's hard to say we had a good time. We did have a good time being together, but there were moments, especially looking at the, uh, the, the museum or whatever you call it, the visitor center, where you could actually hear some of the recordings that they have of the uh, people on the airplane when, you know, realizing that it was a very serious situation and uh, that they, their airplane was being hijacked and they'd heard uh, somehow they had heard about the other airplanes that had crashed into the uh, World Trade Center buildings and the Pentagon. And uh, some of it was very, very um, um, hard to listen to because they were basically saying, and a lot of these were leaving messages on uh, answering machines saying that, uh, you know, I hope that I'll, I'll get to see you again. But uh, if not, I love you. And it was just a very, very touching uh, visit. Uh, and uh, I recommend to anybody that is in that area of Pennsylvania that you go over there and uh, check out that uh, that very um, beautiful place. Yeah, that must have been heartbreaking to listen to that, Jeff. Yes. Brings tears to my eyes just hearing you talk about it. Yeah, you know, at the very beginning of that visitor center, they have the, uh, I think it was NBC News, uh, Today Show, and they, they're breaking in, and then they had the video of the, of the World Trade Center towers, and uh, you know, it just uh, uh, it just brought back so many memories uh, from that day. And as I said before, it's hard for me to you know believe that it was 17 years ago and one day. But uh, anyway, um, we have some. Oh, uh, uh, in the show notes, I'm going to go ahead and uh, include some uh, some movie some video foot, uh, footage uh, that Arlen 
took on his phone of uh, Robert and I leaving, taxiing out and leaving in the Cessna 172 that uh, we rented. And uh, so you could check that out. That was a lot of fun. And we also received some uh, feedback from Becky to kind of just put a, an exclamation point on uh, this uh, part of our show where we talk about this this meetup. All right. So this is the uh, information that uh, Rebecca, Becky, sent to us. It says, so the dedication of the tower occurred Sunday midday in the pouring rain. Captain Jeff would be interested to know that the singing sergeants were there skillfully applying just the right selections of music for the occasion. Looks like the skies will be doing the weeping all this week for those attending a full week of events at the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville. Last Tuesday, as we entered the park and passed the finished concrete structure, which housed um, no chimes, N-O, is that abbreviation yeah. for something? No, oh, just, uh, just that no. there were okay. no chimes inside oh. the housing. Um. We were all curious as to how it could be finished by the weekend. In fact, it was not. Oh, okay, I get it. For, of the 40 chimes, only eight were in place at the time of the ceremony. No reason was given, but there were assurances that the remaining chimes would be in place by the end of this fall. The media has chosen not to focus on what was lacking, focusing the on the honor and uh, significance intended. I happened to catch the entire ceremony in a live stream. Pouring rain made it sound like a scratchy broadcast from the 1920s. As a native Pennsylvanian, hearing the voice of Tom Ridge, the former governor of Pennsylvania, who became the first secretary of Homeland Security, was very meaningful. He started in solemn tones, reminiscent of the first hours and days of searching for something, anything. Then, uh, brightening to mark the accomplishment of the occasion, he recited this quote, Grieve not, nor speak of me with tears, but laugh and talk of me as if I were beside you. That's from Isla Pascal Richardson. He recited it three times, and it stood out to me that I have heard evidence of some joy returning to some of the family members I have heard interviewed, even at times regaining an ability to laugh. This made me feel a little less uneasy about the audio clip recorded at the end of our little meetup. What was captured in audio came a day, came after a day filled with minor odd glitches, at least I thought so, as indicated in the clip. The four of us had paid our respects and were conversing about how amazing it was that the meetup had fallen together that, that day at all, and we were decompressing. I would like to formally blame Captain Nick for the whole Richard Robert thing, which kept surfacing all day. From my experience as a mother, it's safest to blame on those. It's safest to blame those not present. I am not so sure if I will be following up with the Rangers with a link to this week's podcast and show notes, but maybe I will. Because with all the preparations going on at the park last week, in advance of this week's activities, the Rangers were unusually jovial at the visitor center desk. I suppose that happens when a community of people work together towards shouldering a, a shared goal, even if it's a solemn one. A bond occurs and there can be a juxtaposed kind of joy, which onlooker onlookers might not understand outside of the context of mutual or perseverance. Excuse me. Thanks again to Jeff and Robert Richard and Arlen for taking the time and expense for a most out-of-the-way meetup and for taking your lives in your hands, flying around storm cells, and especially the 15-minute car ride in my loser cruiser. May I never again concoct an idea of making me the taxi driver for pilots. I think I had a bona fide panic attack as soon as Captain Jack took the FO seat. For those of us who, for those who wanted to join us but could not, I'd recommend making the pilgrimage around the third or fourth week of October, which is the predicted week for the peak fall foliage season in that area. All of the chimes should be in place by then too. Becca, Becky, Rebecca. Thank you, Becky, for that. Um, yeah, so she's nice. talking about the, uh, they had a 93-foot-tall uh, um, 
wind chime uh, uh, tower okay. that we passed by as we uh, entered the Flight 93 Memorial Park. And at the moment that we were there, there were no wind chimes hanging from it. And that was the 4th of September. And they said that they hope to have it all finished by the 11th for this uh, remembrance ceremony. And I think they ended up getting like eight or nine. Yeah, she said eight were in place at the time of the ceremony. Eight. Yeah, sorry yeah. for not reading that clearly, Becky. I was not sure if you meant the no to be emphasized or if it was an abbreviation for the name of, of the chimes. So. But I, I don't think it'll take them too much longer to get the remaining. Uh, well, it is going to be a total of 40 of them for each of the passengers and crew that were um, killed in that uh, terrible tragedy. Anyway, um, again, thank you, Becky, for uh, arranging it. Uh, thank you, Arlen, for driving way out of your way to come down and, and meet with us and uh, be with us for that. And uh, finally, Richard, Robert, Dick, whatever his name is, for uh, picking me up and flying me in the Cessna 172 from Leesburg. Uh, that, was a, that was a good time. How was his landing? It was excellent. I'll never say anything bad about anybody's yeah. landing. Because I know how it <laughs> Did feels. Did he allow you to fly at all? Uh, yeah, I flew a bit. I didn't land, though. Thank goodness, because if I had landed, we would have flared way too high. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a mess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, he also sent some um, photos of that day. And uh, honestly, I know that he's there with us in the uh, chat room. I have not had a chance to look at them, but I will put a link to them in the show notes for you all to see. I know that... Uh, Robert was taking several photos while we were doing the tour, and we also flew um, over the top of the Flight 93 Memorial, and he actually trusted me with his really, really fancy professional camera, and the window was open, and I was actually like holding it outside the window, and I was thinking, I hope I don't drop this accidentally, but uh, took some photos, aerial photos. Yeah. And then I think uh, that's when I took over flying a little bit so he could take some photos as well. <laughs> like here, let's Those are the switch. Problems. Yeah. Anyway, I uh, had a great time. Um, and again, you know, great time. When I say that, I don't mean that it was all fun and, uh, you know, laughs. Uh, we, you know, uh, there were some tears as well. So, okay. Wow. That should do it for that. And uh, well, so we talked about Nick's meetup. We talked about the Flight 93 Memorial meetup. We talked about this upcoming meetup uh, this Friday night at Max Loggers. And uh, just quickly, uh, if you're not on Slack, you should be and listen to Hillel at the end of the... Not yet, Hillel. Yeah, at the end of the show. And uh, he's going to tell you how you can join the Slack team. And uh, there you'll find information about our upcoming meetups in Columbus, Ohio on the... 19th and St. Louis on the 20th. Tom Seagraves and Janelle and others are going to be in attendance for that. So we're going to be, uh, well, anyway, I'm not going to tell you anything more about it. Just go join the Slack team and you'll see all the details. And I'm really looking forward to that. Now, Steph. Yes. You uh, just uh, came back from a whirlwind tour of uh, somewhere close to the South Pole or getting down that direction. You no, know, it's oddly, it's not that latitudes. far south. It's like, oh, it isn't. Oh, well, it is when you look at the map. But if you look at yeah. the latitude, um, it's only like 51 degrees south, which is like the same oh. northern latitude as London. Oh, 
Okay, well, well never anyway, mind. We're right beside the pole, I thought. Yeah, you're, you're basically <laughs> in. <laughs> okay, well, never mind about the South Pole thing, but you were down under. Yes, I was pretty far south. Yeah. Well, tell us about that. Yeah, so I had a um, opportunity, kind of a last minute thing to sign up for and run in a half marathon race in Patagonia in southern Chile. Uh, so I signed up for that and my uh, good friend, um, who is actually one of my former med school roommates who I do a lot of racing with, actually all around the world at this point, um, she signed up for it as well. Um, and we both headed down there on, let's see, we left Wednesday night. I think my flight from Charlotte left around 6 p.m. And met up with her here in, let's see, yeah, here in Charlotte. She lives in the uh, Greenville Spartanburg area. So she flew here first. And then we had a quick stop in Miami. And then we basically flew all night to Santiago, Chile, and then had about two or three hours on the ground there. And then a, I think it's another two and a half hour flight down to a town called Punta Arenas, which is in Southern Chile. And met up with a whole bunch of, so the, the way that we did the trip was actually organized by a um, tour group that specializes in different marathons around the world. We're organizing trips for different mar- marathons around the world. So by the time we got there, most of the people on that flight were actually part of the tour group. So it was pretty easy to meet up with everyone we were supposed to be with and get the uh, transportation to the hotel. Um, we were all kind of under the impression that the transportation to the hotel would take about three hours based on where the hotel was located in a really gorgeous national park um, just south of the southern Patagonian ice fields. Um, really cool place, high mountain. Ter- well, the elevation isn't very high, but the mountains are very impressive in the the area. Um, but it turns out it was really more like a five and a half hour, six hour drive. So it ended up being about 24 hours worth of travel time total. <clears throat> so that was Wednesday all the way till Wednesday night, all the way to Thursday night. Friday, the, um, the hotel we stayed at is called the Rio Serrano and really spectacular locations in this little valley next to, um, the confluence of these two different rivers. And it has just spectacular views of the Torres del Paine, um, national park. And I guess that's actually the name of some of the major, um, mountain peaks there. It's like, um, so really, really incredible views. They arranged all, all kinds of different excursions for people to go on. So we did kind of this all day excursion into the park. Um, fortunately, as it was the day before the race, it didn't require a lot of walking. It was a lot of traveling in their vans and stopping at different points of interest and getting out and seeing things and a lot of just really stunning views and a lot of uh, exposure to the uh, the winds, which are very common in the area. So the whole weekend, there were probably winds. I mean, they were saying it was probably... 60 to 70 kilometers per hour. So about thir- high 30s, low 40s miles per hour winds. Pretty well sustained, gustier in some places. Um, so that was all day on Friday. And then Saturday, I uh, got up and ran the half marathon. There was a full marathon option too, but I didn't take that because I've got a couple more full marathons coming up later on this fall and I don't need to run three full marathons in a row. That's just crazy. Although I'm sure people do that. <laughs> um Really challenging course. It was very hilly. Um, Part of the road that we were on is not paved, so it was kind of gravel in some places. And again, some of those 60 to 70 kilometer per hour uh, headwinds. So it was by far my slowest half marathon ever, but it was really, really fun, really beautiful. Lots of chances to stop along the road and take pictures of some of the really stunning sights. Um, What was the elevation there? 
Yeah, I was just going to ask that question. What's the elevation there, Steph? So the majority, so the like the median elevation of the race course was about 700 feet. Oh, so not so high. Okay. No, it's not high. But I mean, the elevation changes along the course were pretty significant. There were some pretty nasty hills. I mean, hills steep enough that I don't think I saw anyone really running any of them. So there's a lot of walking going on in those spots. And it's actually hard running downhill in some of the places too because of the headwinds. Like I just felt like I couldn't run forward into the the wind. I think I have bird bones. So it's <laughs> being kind of pushed backwards <laughs> up the hill. So I was trying to you go down the hill. So lifted away. People who had more, more mass, more mass than I did, who had no problem like, you know, cutting through the wind. I couldn't do it. I was like, this is as fast as I can go. <laughs> I have no trouble going downhill. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. And then there were some times where you'd turn around just slightly and the wind would be at your back and it would really feel like it was pushing you up the hill. Um and then the next day, a couple more excursions. I did um, went horseback riding in the morning. We did rock climbing in the afternoon. Um, along the way, we got to see different glaciers and these you know beautiful mountain lakes with these icebergs in them. And it was just really, really awesome. I'm going to try and post some of those pictures onto uh, Twitter for anyone who follows me there. I haven't had a chance to really organize much of them yet. If you put them anywhere else, let me know and we'll put a link. In the oh, yeah, I'll send, I'll send you a couple of them, them that are, I mean, it's, it's okay. gorgeous. If anyone has a chance Beautiful. To, we, to go down yeah. there, it's, it's well worth the 24 hours of travel from the U.S. to get there. Um, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, basically yesterday, let's see, what day is today? Wednesday. So I left Monday. Then the goal was to actually leave the hotel kind of late in the day for a flight that left just before midnight, like 11 p.m. on Monday, um, except because of the large group of people with the tour group, they had most of their transportation vans tied up that day, taking people on different excursions. So I had to leave with a group that was leaving at 11 o'clock in the afternoon, um, which was OK, because it kind of gave me time to explore uh, Punta Arenas a little bit, which is a cute little town. And had Punta Arenas. Oh, OK. <laughs> Punta Arenas. And uh, now, now. Yeah. yeah, we know we know where Dana's mind is. He's still thinking about the <laughs> blue whale or whatever. The blue whale. <laughs> um, so what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So a little bit of time to explore the town and had a nice, really nice meal, a cute restaurant. Um, I kind of hung out there for like two hours <laughs> and just had they, had they had their own local beers um, or their, their own homemade house brews um, and some ceviche. How are they? Really good. Really good. Yeah. Um, he suggested, he, he said the Bach was the most popular, which is not a, a style I would normally drink, but I said, sure, if it's the most popular, I'll give it a try. And it was really good. I love Bach, yeah. especially the night. Especially what? Symphony. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, another 24 hours of traveling back. Um, I really almost missed my flight in Sao Paulo. I missed my, almost missed my connection. We um, got on the plane in Santiago. That was flight number two of four. And pushed back from the gate and someone had uh, some medical issues on the flight. Nothing that was life-threatening or serious, but serious enough that they couldn't go on the four-hour flight from Santiago to Sao Paulo. So we went to go return back to the gate, only to find that the gate was already occupied by another aircraft. So they took us out to a remote stand and had medical personnel show up. And then they had to retrieve that person and their families luggage from the hold so that took about an hour of coordinating all of that uh, yeah and uh, by the time we got to sao paulo i had like 35 minutes to make my flight and then on top of it of course my mobile boarding pass wouldn't load but i had had nowhere to re to actually print a 
boarding pass because of the way the flights were timed before that. So I almost got held up at immigration, but turns out the airline was actually looking for me because they knew I was on that flight and I was the last person to, you know, make it in to get on that international flight back to the U.S. Um, so they actually found me as they were trying to send me back through immigration and they're like, no, no, you can come through. So that was actually really nice of them to do that because otherwise I definitely would have missed the flight. And yep. Um, got back late last night, landed in Charlotte at about 10 o'clock. We had a delay leaving Miami as well because the first officer for the flight was on a flight inbound from Bogota and they were delayed, I guess. And then just after we, just as we landed in Charlotte, the skies opened up and lots of lightning. So the ramp was closed. So we couldn't even get to our gate because they couldn't push back the aircraft that was occupying our gate. So we sat on the ramp for about an hour. So I got home around midnight last night. Fun times. <laughs> I bet Jacko was happy to see you. He was very happy to see me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you were explaining your routing, I was in my mind, I thought that Santiago was north of Sao Paulo. Uh, but nope. uh, I looked my, at my Google Maps here and see that, uh, no, that is not the case. It's not. Yeah. It wasn't the most direct routing, but it was the routing that got me home in time to work on Wednesday because everything else. So you couldn't have gone direct from Santiago to Miami or that would have gotten I, you in I later? I could have, but the, the flight times were just really weird. Yeah. For what I would have ended up back here like midday today. Ah, uh, okay. Like I said, the original goal was to spend most of Monday actually at the resort still, but then the way it worked out was I had to take an earlier uh, transportation shuttle back anyway. But wow, what an adventure! Yeah. But you know what? We're, none of us, uh, those of us who know you, Steph, uh, are not surprised. No, <laughs> such an organized traveler. I mean, I would have been in a complete mess. I would have like taken three days to do that. I would have freaked out. About well, I mean, it's like, what do you do if you miss your connection? You miss your connection. So my my friend um, that I ran with, she actually took the later flight back, the one that went direct from Santiago to Miami, and the flight got canceled. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> why? After, uh, I don't I don't know why that flight got canceled. I haven't talked to her yet. She's actually not back home yet. She should just be. Oh, she actually should just be landing in Charlotte now to get her next flight to Greenville. Um, but she left Punta Arenas late because the flight. The aircraft en route to from Santiago to Punta Arenas to go back doing the turn um, also had a medical emergency on the way to Punta Arenas. So they got turned around. So they had a two hour delay. So she thought she was going to miss her connection in Santiago, but then it turned out the flight was canceled anyway. So I, yeah, she got rebooked through Houston. And then we actually, like myself and my dad, took care of um, rescheduling her Miami to Greenville flight. Unfortunately, because of the um, the hurricane, she there was no uh, change fee to do that. Well, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> able to just log silver lining there. Do it. I guess it's still faster than taking a ship. You know, it is slightly, <laughs> just slightly. barely, <laughs> or driving, <laughs> or driving. Although it's funny that town Punta Arenas <laughs> is right on the Straits of Magellan, which is kind of cool. Really that connects oh, the wow. Atlantic and Pacific oceans. How long of a drive could you even drive that? I mean, how long of a drive would that be? How uh, many you, weeks? You could. <laughs> It'd be a long time. You could drive it. <laughs> it would take a very hey, long time. RV trip. That's right. Twenty twenty. Uh, oh, hot air balloon. <laughs> hot air balloon. Do it by balloon. Yeah. Also a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Bring some food rations. 
<laughs> no, I suggest airplane and I suggest business class. It's very nice. You get to sleep, you get to watch some movies, have some good food. And Did beverages. you go business class both ways? Uh, just for the, uh, the long flights. So Miami to Santiago and then uh, Sao Paulo to Miami. Good for you. Yeah. I should mention, uh, well, I don't want to cut uh, Steph off. Uh, do you want to say anything else? That pretty much took up everything, all your time between shows, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did the show, what, on Monday? Um, Monday, yeah. You and yeah. I were doing it on Monday. And then... Uh, well, then I worked the Tuesday and Wednesday, Friday. and I left straight from work on Wednesday. Okay. So, uh, when I met, just mentioned driving and motorhome, we have some exciting news. Uh, next year, our big meetup is going to be in Oshkosh, uh, Air Venture, to be exact, in 2019, July. And uh, I, I put some uh, real money down on a on a very nice motorhome. So uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a done deal, folks. Uh, if you're thinking about uh, getting together for a big APG meetup and being there with a whole bunch of people that are just you know nuts about aviation. It's uh, Air Venture 2019 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and uh, the APG crew. We're going to be there. Yeah, hey, man. In hey, a tra- man. in a transit van. I yes. might just rope, ride my motorcycle up there that week. All right, there that'd you be go. fun. Then you can you can be the one that goes to get us the food provisions. Yeah, yeah provisions, provisions yeah. because you you're not going to get all the food because if I'm there, there'll be all. Oh, that's right. Up. You're going to be our chef, of course. Come on. <laughs> all right. I've already started planning out the uh, menu. We're still trying to uh, figure out how we're going to get a big green egg uh, at our RV uh, in the... <laughs> well, I'm just going to tell it behind the motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there we'll we go. go. On a, a little trailer. Sure. Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> anyway, so uh, mark that on your calendars, folks. I think it's the third weekend in July, like around the 21st, 22nd, something like that. Uh, make sure that you're there because it's going to be a great time. For sure. All right. And uh, with that, unless anybody has anything else, I think it's time for us to talk just quickly about the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the Coffee Fund is your way to support our show financially. Now, many of you support it by listening, downloading, sending in feedback, and we do appreciate all of that. But some of you have the financial resources to help us out and offset some of the costs of doing the show. Web hosting, media hosting, equipment, and uh, meetups and stuff. So... We do appreciate your help with that. And if you want to join the Coffee Fund Cadre, and as a, a little perk, you get to listen to the crew logs that we put out periodically. And since the last show, we have some Classic Fund contributors, Mazus Karim, Jeff Moeller, Frank O'Connor, and Frank Heyman. And the other way to do it is to become a patron via Patreon. And since the last show, we have some new producers, Anthony Tamburini, John Shear, Mark Jennings, Alex Robinson, and Mike Bambrick. So join the Coffee Fund Cadre and support our show financially by heading over to the Coffee Fund 
you can learn about it by heading over to the Airline Pilot Guy website. Thank you very much for all of your great contributions. We really do appreciate them. Stand by for news. Okay, we'll start with uh, item A, uh, unmanned airport control tower installed in Northern Colorado. Um, uh, We are seeing more and more of these kind of installations uh, happening around the world. Um, Not sure how many of these are in place in our United States of America, but uh, I think they're becoming much more um, present uh, because of uh, the cost savings involved. This one from Loveland, Colorado. A new high-tech experiment is underway at the Northern Colorado Regional Airport that could have ramifications around the country. The Colorado Department of Transportation Division of Aeronautics is nearing completion on the remote tower project. This is a quote from David Ulane, the director of the Colorado Department of Transportation Division of Aeronautics. It's the first one that's going to combine radar and track-based information with the video-based information that will come from the cameras to provide an even better situational picture of what's happening here. Three masts filled with cameras stretch along the airport in Loveland. The cameras stream into a room that acts as a virtual tower. Well, and there's a picture here of the um, of the virtual tower, I guess, a bunch of these uh, large like big screens that are all uh, lined up together. And it's as if you're looking out a control tower window and you can see the airfield. Um, we basically have what looks like a video wall when you're standing in front of them. It uh, makes it look like you're uh, looking out the windows of a traditional air traffic control tower cab. Uh, let's see. So anyway, if you want to learn more and uh, read more about this particular news item, it will be in the show notes. But um, in fact, when um, Robert and I were leaving uh, from Leesburg, heading up to uh, Shanksville, we or Somerset County Airport. Uh, they had, uh, or Robert mentioned to me that that was like the site of the very first remote tower. I guess they were doing some experiments with it right there at Leesburg, um, Virginia. And uh, you could see the, the mast and the cameras and all that kind of stuff. So I guess it was a successful experiment, and they're going to be installing more of these around our country and uh, places around the world. Got it. So, you- uh, so I just was looking at all this and I thought the uh, uh, title was a little bit un, uh, misleading. So it's the, basically the tower, you know, in quotes is just the video set up at the airfield and then offsite, someone's watching the video. Yeah, really. It's unmanned. It's not unmanned. Really is not accurate. <laughs> it's not an unmanned tower. There are people watching it. They're just not on site. Yeah. It's right. all remote. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, Steph. That's a very badly written uh, yeah, was little, maybe purposely maybe that's for yeah yeah, yeah I think uh, a few of the quieter airfields uh, that still require air traffic in the UK are going to have some of these they've been looking at it and uh, um, you know perhaps places like London City um, might 
end up with this. Uh, so it's interesting. The one thing that I was just a trifle surprised was that it looks like the screens are not completely wrapped around as they would be in a real tower. They they look like they're you know all splayed out in, in front in a, in a slight arc. But uh, I, I guess the controllers just have to learn that, uh, you know, the left-hand side uh, uh, and the right-hand side join up in their sort of imaginations. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's a way for them to, like, select different cameras or something like that. Perhaps. Oh, could be, I don't yeah. Know. yeah. They can probably pan around. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think and they're I probably hope- just getting a view of, you know, the most critical parts of the airport yeah. to watch i'm sure they can zoom in and get uh, overlays as well that, yeah. i mean it would it could in theory give them a lot more situational awareness than just looking out a window if you're following technology and you're uh, aware of uh, what do they call that virtual reality and uh, augmented reality mm-hmm. i think this would be a great um application of that where they could wear those those goggles or whatever yeah, you know, that, yeah absolutely and they could just turn their heads around and they would be looking exactly at those cameras and i'll bet that that would be a, a much more realistic experience than just looking at these flat panel displays on the wall yeah yeah Maybe I, cheaper I, I think it would be a good yes exactly steph uh you know you do one bloke a headset and uh off you go you can sit there in a in a in a chair that spins around and <laughs> yeah just do it from his living room one one thing that I'll talk about here, though, is it one controller per tower? Like, so is this person supposed to work one tower? Is it possible this person could be working more than one tower? Oh, I hope not. I would hope not either. But you know, because that could get confusing. It could get confusing. I is this person one person? Is this yeah. one person working ground and tower and multitasking in that situation as well? I mean, I think most of these places, Dana, are like places that have very low volumes of traffic. So, you know, you know, they probably, you know, one person, even at these places that are existent today with tower uh, facilities, they probably only have really one person doing all that anyway. True. I'm guessing. True. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I used to work in. I fly in out of Fulton County. As a matter of fact, that's where I had my airplane for a couple of years. And uh, that that airport would probably, even though the the, the real issue is it's under the Atlanta um, class Bravo airspace, uh, so that makes it a little more complex. But I would imagine it's more like uh, Fulton County, where there's not a whole lot going on. I mean, it's a pretty quiet airport. Versus quiet, if you yeah. you know to take some place like. Um, uh, PDK, Petrie DeCab Airport, that place is crazy. So it's almost like operating a major airline airport um, as a as a regional airport, Teterboro or something like that. So yeah, I can I can see where this would be uh, would be uh, not a bad idea uh, to, to at least try it out. And in a lot of cases, I agree with you, Nick. I think it would be uh, the the situational awareness could could be a lot better. You can zoom in to to see things where the naked eye can't see it, and, and of course now you're using. Um, technology to help you see better versus trying to use, uh, you know, um, um, oh my God, not magnifying glasses, uh, binoculars. Wow. Yeah, binoculars. <laughs> wow. Why couldn't I remember binoculars? Maybe because I haven't used a pair in a long time. But, anyways, yeah, so I, I can see there's some, some really good sides to that. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, you, you should be able to tag aircraft uh, with uh, IFF uh, readouts as well, I would have thought, and, uh, you know, give you a lot more data, uh, assuming that And when uh, ADSC comes along and everyone starts using it, 
it, you know, it would be great. All the call signs, all the all the visual traffic will have their call signs tagged on them. All this kind of thing. I think it could has the potential to be uh, brilliant if you uh, invest the technology in it. Robert's telling us in the chat room, uh, Jeff, the airport I fly from about the size of what Dana is describing. Their tower has one person the first and last couple of hours of the day and two the rest of the time. Three, three, uh, um, sometimes in the, on the weekends when it's busier. Hmm. Yeah. Well, interesting. I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm not, a, um, I'm, I'm not against this kind of, a using technology in this way. Um, I think that this is a, a way to kind of save money and, and still be a, a safe operation for these very low volume traffic kind of places. And also keep uh, it some type of control at the airport versus right versus uh, you know losing complete uh, control tower you know access or, or availability. So I think it's a good idea. Well, we we're going to talk about a situation right now where it's uh, probably a good thing there was somebody in a remote or not a remote tower, but a, a control tower facility in uh, Fort Myers. Let's listen to this audio. It's one at the, the Dolphin American 862. Two, we got to go around. Nine zero heading American 862. We're, we're good from there. Look for the visual runway six, American 862. See that Airbus? What were you doing over here? He thought we were RSWs on short final for runway five. That's embarrassing. What airline was that? American. <laughs> That's going to be an ASAP. Thank you. Looks like a 73. How's Airbus? A320. So, and I guess uh, the way I set it up was kind of inaccurate. Uh, uh, the tower had nothing to do with it. I think the air crew themselves realized uh, as they approached the wrong airport that they were not at the correct airport. This was an American Airlines Airbus 320-200 uh, performing flight 862 from Philly to Fort Myers. Cleared for a visual approach to Fort Myers runway 6. They reported the airport in sight. They did have an airport in sight uh, and was handed off to tower. Uh, unfortunately, it was a wrong airport. The aircraft lined up with a runway uh, five of nearby Page Field, about six nautical miles from Fort Myers Airport. And that's actually what the southwestern Florida International Airport, I think they're calling it now. Uh, they descended to about 800 feet uh, mean sea level about one minute after being handed off to tower. And the crew then announced that they were going around. ATC vectored them for an approach to runway six at RSW and the aircraft performed a safe visual landing to Fort Myers runway six on the second approach about six minutes after the go around uh, FAA radar data confirmed that the aircraft was on short final to page fields runway five. They were going through about 800 feet above ground. Um, so we heard the, uh, audio it's not the first time that this has happened and it will not be the last we've talked about this several times on the show and uh, people still think how in the world could this possibly happen 
in this day and time with all the technology that we have and the navigation displays and everything else. But it's very, a very potent thing when you're looking outside and you see an airport and you're convinced that that is the airport that you're supposed to be landing at. And uh, you, it, uh, you know, believe it or not, it's easy to kind of look away from all those other things to ensure that you're uh, landing at the correct airport. And uh, well, especially for for a certain for a given area, you know, a lot of airports will have runways oriented in the same direction for prevailing winds. So if you have two airports nearby and they both have similar uh, length runways, similarly oriented runways, sometimes it can be really challenging to if you're just relying on visual cues to pick out which airport is the one that you mean to be landing at. So, Yeah, I mean, we're looking at a picture, a vertical picture here. And of course, the airports look completely different. But when you're down at uh, a couple of thousand feet and you're just looking at an illuminated runway or just picking out a piece of tarmac, one bit of tarmac looks surprisingly similar to another. Now, of course, if you, if you compare the two side by side, you go, oh, of course, that, it's that one. But you're only seeing one at a time. You're not seeing them both simultaneously and picking one. You're just seeing a runway and going, oh, oh that looks about right. In we go. Yep. And, you know, it, it's, it, you have to be disciplined and you have to look and cross-check to make sure that your navigation display is indeed showing you you know, uh, that you're going to the proper runway. Although sometimes you'll look at it and go, well, there must have been a map shift or something and it's just not right. Well, when it may actually be you know, correct and telling you that you're not going to the right place. And uh, also, you know, having uh, backup instrumentation, backup instrument approaches, ILS systems, that kind of thing, just to make sure, you know, that you're going to the right place but uh the good news in this case is that uh, the crew i think finally realized as they got a little bit closer wait a minute this is not the right airport and uh, as embarrassing as it uh, as it is and uh, and i'm sure they had to do quite a bit of paperwork and i'm not sure if they you know suffered any you know administrative uh punishment or whatever but uh you know they uh they did not land at the wrong airport they almost did but they they didn't so good on them yeah uh, unlike Runway Ferguson, who uh, you'll remember yeah. that plane teller who did land at the wrong yeah. airfield. He managed to stop his 7-3 just before the end, though. But uh, they, the townspeople uh, thought that was a wonderful trick to play. <laughs> yeah, in a way, it was like uh, it's kind of a good thing that he did that. Yeah, he, he had all that notoriety. He put that town yeah. on the map. I think it was called Buffalo <laughs> or something. Yeah. Anyway, he became quite uh, a celebrity amongst the locals, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we've uh, many major airlines over over the last several years have, have done this. We've talked about it on the show with Southwest and American. Um, another airline that's very similar to Acme uh, had some incidents like this in recent uh, years. But uh, have either of you guys ever come close? I have not yet. Well, and, and I was just going to comment, uh, you know, I, I understand that, you know, you, when the visual conditions like this, uh, you know, it's easy to look out the airplane and, and kind of lose track of what's going on inside. My personal technique, and this is just me personally, I always, no matter what it is, if it's VFR, IFR, um, any type of uh, non-published approach, I always load up the runway and I always cross-check inside because I don't want to be that person that makes that wrong approach into the wrong airport and make the wrong landing. And, and as Dr. Seth uh, so keenly uh, you know, made, made the mention of is that 
a lot of runways in the same region have the similar or very very similar uh, runway layouts and there are a lot of uh, airports that um come to mind i mean just uh, albuquerque is one of them another one is uh, uh santa fe where they have uh santa fe uh is it santa fe texas no no what's the what's that one uh, el paso el paso all right, do you get the yeah, uh, Biggs Army Airfield yeah, it's and right El Paso there. International? So this, this, they're very close. Very close. There's a <laughs> lot of airports out there yeah. um, that are very closely aligned and look very similar. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, ju- I just as uh, personal technique, I go ahead and uh, make sure I look down at my display to make sure I am lined up on the wrong runway. And if there's a, a, a uh, frequency available for an ILS or VOR or anything that I can use to identify, even if it's an NDB to help identify the airport, I always put it in the uh, the radio frequency box. That's good practice. Yes. Yeah. And when I was in the Air Force, uh, I led four Phantoms back uh, to the right runway at the right airfield, but in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> While I'd been gone, they changed runways. So, uh-huh. in, you know, uh, and I, uh, they must have told me, but I uh, didn't really, uh, I wasn't really listening. I suspect and I just came back to the runway I expected to be active. And none of the three guys who were with me in the formation said a bloody word. <laughs> they didn't help. They just. <laughs> And we go screaming through the overhead and air traffic, <laughs> air traffic through a wobbly. So we just carried on going, you know, disappeared out into the distance, turned around and came back on the right runway. You didn't so. see anything. Nothing, nothing to see here. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. It's a bit hard to hide four phantoms at a couple of hundred feet over the airfield though. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Don't say anything about that. Thanks a lot, guys, for helping me out there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, they were killing themselves. They thought it was the funniest yeah. thing they'd ever seen. Did they know? <laughs> well, at I the don't. Time? I don't think so. I mean, they, they well, they probably claimed that they did. Yeah, and they but I had a navigator in the back, and they were like, uh, you know, wait a minute, a navigator? He's supposed to keep you uh, out That's of trouble, you'd right? Think so, wouldn't you? You'd think so. It was probably Bonzo. He was asleep again. <laughs> <laughs> People like Jim Howard and. Yeah, yeah, Mike Dell. Exactly you know, right, yeah. you guys are supposed to keep us out of trouble. Come on, yep. um, I I did not quite the same kind of thing, but uh, I flew in a Newark. They were landing on runway two two when we landed, and then we had to, you know, offload the passengers, onload the passengers for the next flight going back to Atlanta. I taxi out. Well, in the meantime, it was only maybe forty five minutes to an hour, you know, elapsed time, or maybe a little bit longer. Uh, they had turned the airport around and they were departing from runway four. And even though the ground controller gave us instructions to taxi to runway four in my head, that was tw- runway two, two. And so I came out and made a left turn and I was looking down at all these taxi lights kind of <laughs> facing me. And I'm thinking, look at all this doesn't move. What's going on? Exactly. Yeah. Where are you guys and going? Then, so Don't you know who the what was, in the runways over and there? And of course, my first officer didn't say anything to me. And then it was very, uh, I was kind of surprised that the uh, Newark controller didn't start yelling at me. And he said, uh, Acme, uh, turn left next taxiway and uh, turn left again and then rejoin taxiway, whatever it is, out to runway four. And I'm thinking, Oh, <laughs> that's why I'm looking at like this. <laughs> he just decided he was it wasn't, nice wasn't it. worth his effort that day. He was just like, nope, just turn around. <laughs> yeah. And we got going in the right direction and everything was okay. I love you know? it. Yeah. 
I was very pleased that he didn't yell at me. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, I guess we can go on with this next one, which is a really interesting one. Um, many of you have probably already heard some of the audio from this. Uh, there was a uh, student pilot taking off on Sunday from the Beverly Airport. And she was a student uh, soloing. And she takes off in her warrior, and we have some audio of this. It's very interesting. Let's take a listen. Charlie Tower, Warrior 2496, X-ray, holding short of runway 9, are departing to 10 Warrior 2496, X-ray, Beverly Tower, hold short of runway 9, landing traffic. Hold short of runway 9, landing traffic. Beverly Information, Foxtrot, current 1070 ultimate 3030. Warrior 2496, X-ray, runway 9, full length, cleared for takeoff. Warrior 2496 X-ray. Here's the takeoff. Thank you, X-ray. Uh, Tower, uh, that Warrior just departed the right main gear strut and wheel just fell off the airplane. Roger. Warrior 2496 X-ray, Tower. Yeah. Okay, Warrior 2496 X-ray, the uh, Waco just said that your right main is now missing from the airplane. It is... It's Falling off the airplane, say your intentions. Can I circle back to land? Warrior 906 X ray affirmative. Um, are you a solo, ma'am? I'm a student pilot solo, yeah. Okay, just it's, it'll be okay. Just um, go ahead and uh, circle the airport for now. Make a right turn to circle. We're going to get some people out to help you, okay? okay. Pattern altitude 1100, and you can make a right turn out, okay? Okay. Warrior 906 X-ray, just circle. We're going to get some people out to help you. Everything will be okay. Okay. 906 X-ray, just continue to circle. Go ahead and fly overhead the air runway, um, just like you would be flying a normal pattern, but just maintain your altitude. We're going to get someone out on the frequency to help you, all right? All right. And then 906 X-ray, just continue circling. We've got uh, possibly an instructor that should be able to come up on the frequency, all right? All right. Nine or six X-ray tower. Yeah. Okay, nine or six X-ray. We have one of the instructors up here, uh, Greg. He just wants to make sure how you're doing. Okay. Hey, Maggie, this is Greg. Um, how are you doing? Um, <laughs> good as it gets, I guess. Yeah. Listen, it's going to be okay. So um, you got plenty of fuel. Um, you got the aircraft under control, so uh, you're just going to continue circling. John's uh, John's going to be here shortly, and we'll keep you uh, we'll keep you updated. But we'll we'll work it out. All right. And Seneca, I mean uh, Warrior Nine or Six X-ray. There's a DC three that's off to your right. He'll be landing, so just extend down a little bit, and you can just maintain your altitude and fly behind him. All right. All right. Looking for traffic. And uh, Warrior 906 X-ray, you can uh, turn it back into the field. This time, I want you to circle to the north or to the left, all right? All right. And Warrior 906 X-ray, on this path, I'm going to have you circle to the left. I do have two aircraft coming up from the south that will be landing. Just circle to the left. We do have some instructors up here, so just continue to do the circling like you are. You're doing a good job. Okay, I'll circle to the left. Warrior 906 X-ray, if you can just go ahead and make that left turn now for the base and then overfly the runway again. I do have traffic coming up from the south, all right? All right. 
49 or 6x-ray won't be much longer. Uh, you're doing a really good job. We do have the uh, two instructors up here, so we'll be helping you here shortly, all right? All right. Maggie, this is John. How you doing? I'm okay. Okay, you're doing a great job flying the airplane. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. They're uh, going to stage the equipment uh, just in case anything's needed there, but we're just going to wait. We're going to take our time here. we got plenty of time. you got plenty of fuel. we got plenty of daylight. So um, just try to relax, and you always heard me say go back to basics. So we're going to work the basics here as much as possible, okay? All right. Uh, I did get in touch with your father. I let him know what's going on, and he's on his way over to Flight Center now. Okay. So, Maggie, it's John again. They just did a final sweep of the runway to make sure there's nothing out there that's going to cause any problems. Um, I can see a tank uh, at altitude lining up the runway. So won't you just continue down like you normally do? Um, what I'm thinking is just have you fly down the length of nine like you're doing right now, and then when you're comfortable, I'm going to have you turn and, um, to the left and enter a left downwind on zero nine. Would that work for you? Yeah, that works. Okay, and uh, I'll tell you, um, I'm going to keep an eye on you and maybe suggest when you might want to start the turn uh, crosswind and downwind. We're going to do this just like we did. I know it's hard to say this, but treat it like as much as like a normal landing as you can. Um, so the power settings we've always done, the pitch for the airspeed, keep everything as normal as you can. All right. So, Maggie, the other thing is, is um, we've looked at the part. We pulled that off the run. We've looked at it. Bill Eason's looked at it. Um, Greg and I have looked at the airplane through binoculars, so it's your right wheel that's missing. So as you end, the plus side here is you get a little bit of a left crosswind. So if you use your normal left-wing crosswind correction, that means the left side will touch down first, and you're just going to ease the right side down. It's going to try to pull to the right, so be prepared to use left, as much left rudder and left brake as you have to to try to keep it on the center line. All right. Okay, Maggie, let's uh, do a left crosswind turn, and you're going to be flying approximately a heading of uh, 360. All right. So, Maggie, you're in a better position than I am to call when you want to turn left downwind, but give yourself uh, plenty of room. You don't want to cut the base too tight. So as you turn downwind, make sure like the left wing tip, just the left wing tip is just touching the runway. That should give you uh, sufficient space. You know, like I said, as much as normal as possible. All right. Looks real good, Maggie. Uh, you get enough spacing out there? Um, I think so, yeah. We're not going to rush everything. This is going to be perfectly normal. If if something looks wrong, I'll tell you to do a go-around, but we're going to do a perfectly normal landing here. All right. Um, should I drop the flaps now? Yeah, I want you to reduce about 2,000, 2,100 RPM, and under the white arc, drop the flaps and trim it for about 80. All right. Okay, Maggie, let me know when you're comfortable and you're trimmed up. Um, I think I'm good right now. Okay, so just like we've done it a lot of hundreds of hundreds of times before, just kind of look back over the left wing. You want to be about a 45 degree angle from nine, and then um, bring the power back. I'm gonna say about 1700 because there's not a lot of wind here, and just a normal turn to base. You're gonna be doing a left turn to a heading of uh, 180 for that base leg. I am turning now. Everything is looking good, Maggie. Hang in there. Keep, just keep doing what you've been trained to do. Okay, I'm gonna drop the second notch flap. Okay, second notch of flaps and trim for about 75. All right. 
Okay, Maggie, is it turning final? What do you feel high or do you feel low? Um, I feel high. Okay, let's reduce the power. Let's bring it back to about 13, 1400. Okay, so I'm 14 right now. And about 70 knots. 75 initially. So, Maggie, when you're comfortable, go to full flaps. That's okay. You're doing a great job. Just remember that zero nine draining point. Yep. Very light winds, Maggie. Very uh, light left crosswind. So that's, that's all to your advantage. Okay. You're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm gonna go back all the way on the tower. You're doing a perfect job, Maggie. Just treat it like a normal landing. It's going to try to pull to the right. So when that when that, that left main touches down, our uh, right main touches down. Beautiful job, Maggie. You got a whole bunch of people clapping for you up here. So just make sure you shut the mags off, shut the master off, and get out of the aircraft and away from it as clear as you can. Great work. Thank you. Great job, Maggie. Excellent job. Wow. You're 17 years old. You're solo. And then the right... The whole right strut falls off? Is that That's what, what they said? Right mean came off. <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> Yikes. Incredible. Maggie Tarasca spoke about her ordeal after losing a wheel off her plane. And here's her quote. Thought I was going to flip. I didn't. That was good. It was a little bit bumpy. I hit a few signs. <laughs> Listen, that's the worst that happened there. That's she did. A great so job. I'm thinking, Maggie, if you're going uh, if you're the, if your goal is to become an airline pilot someday i think that uh, you're going to make a great one yeah that was just uh everybody did just such, such an amazing job the flight instructor um you know the calmness in his voice to help her out the air traffic controller the air traffic controller mm-hmm. to recognize that she's a solo pilot and you know she was freaking out for a moment but once once she really once she heard her flight instructor's voice i think that just you know, hit a note with her and, and just got her into a normal frame of mind. And, uh, and we have a very successful outcome as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Lane says she wants to join the Air Force, uh, which is which is great. Uh, yeah, actually, she'll be well prepared because I think bits drop off Air Force airplanes all the time. Good training and then no, seriously, she's a damn good job. Really impressed with her because uh, she's, you know, not got a lot of experience and uh, she thought she coped wonderfully. And, you know, obviously in her voice, she expressed what she was feeling internally uh, through the way she was talking. I think that any of us, if we were in the same position, whether we sounded like that or not, that's what we would be feeling inside. And uh, and, and I, I'm I'm um, it's almost it's hard not to get emotional just listening to this thing and, and how happy everybody is at the at the end of this. And. What a great story. I just want to yeah, give her like absolutely. a big hug, especially hearing her, yeah. her voice crack that first time. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah. she just needs a hug right now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But great job to her. Great job to the instructors. That was, you know, textbook all around for yeah. a situation. Yeah, you're like right. Uh, I don't think there was a textbook for There's that. There's not a textbook for that, no, but, but it was, you know, it was perfect. Yes. They, if they, they wrote a textbook, if they wrote a textbook, they wrote a textbook about what to do if your right main yes. gear falls off. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> this would be it. If you, you remember the, uh, the, was it airplane that they, Talked them through that. 
into the oh yeah talked him down, down to landing yeah talked him down to landing and he's sitting yeah. there sweating profusely i mean that just that just kind of reminds me of what she was probably going through but let me tell you what in in all honesty uh maggie congratulations you did a fantastic job and you should automatically get your license as an honorary <laughs> award yeah that was your check ride you're yeah, done there's your check ride you're done congratulations <laughs> call lou owens because i'm assuming this is beverly mass that's what it sounded it is, like yeah uh, so call Lou Owens if he's still alive. Uh, he did my check right back way, way, way back in the, in the day. But call Lou Owens and, and go ahead and have him just issue your private private certificate. So be done with it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. I did a, a, an engine out landing for real and was in the simmer a few weeks later. And they didn't excuse me having to do it again in the sim. I thought that was really mean. <laughs> That's rude. Darn them. What's yeah. the matter with these people? <laughs> so miserable. Ted, that was probably the lousiest landing in the history of this airport. Well, for me it was, yeah. <laughs> Some of us here, particularly me, would like to buy you a drink and shake your hand. Yay. Yay. So it's always good to hear those stories. Yeah. And uh, yeah, great. Yeah, bravo. Good story. Great. Good job, Maggie. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of the Air Force, uh, a little bit of military news quickly here. A uh, Apparently, the Air Force T-38C Talon training jets aren't doing very well this past year. This is number four that uh, crashed and have uh, been removed from the Air Force inventory. Uh, looks like uh, this latest incident occurred at 10.03 local time in Texas on September 11th, according to an official statement. One of the pilots is now at their United Regional Medical Center in Wichita Falls. The other is at the Shepherd Clinic. Both are reportedly in stable condition. Uh, apparently, they were, let's see, where is the actual story of what happened here? The crash reportedly caused a small fire. no. Uh, does it say what happened here? No, it just says that no. pilots eject after this is the headline after their Air Force T-38 Talon jet veers off the runway. Uh, yeah. So there must have been some kind of a either a landing or a takeoff accident. We can't really tell you because there's not enough information in this article for me to say whether it was a takeoff or landing accident. But uh, apparently everybody survived, which is good. But the airplane didn't. But yeah. Yeah. Okay, and uh, by the way, the T-38 is uh, uh, the advanced trainer in which I flew, and uh, it's been around for nearly 50 years now, and the U.S. Air Force is supposedly uh, announcing the winner of the Talon Trainer Replacement Program, also known as T-X, at the Air Force Association's annual symposium later this month i wonder uh, which aircraft are in that competition i'd love to know i don't know looks like i i it's i can't say with um, confidence but i think that uh, one of the airplanes i think at least initially was uh, being put out there by saab s-a-a-b oh yeah uh, i'm not sure um yeah i'm saab 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 uh but Obviously, somebody out there is listening, thinking, that's not right, Jeff. What the heck are you talking about? They'll correct us. It's okay. Yeah, oh, I'm sure they will. Because I was just curious to know whether the British Aerospace, uh, the Hawk, was going to be in the competition. Because, of course, the, the Navy uses that one. Uh, I don't know. As a jet. But apparently, um, 
the idea was axed when it was clear that the 40-plus-year-old design, even though it's been updated a lot, did not meet the USAS lofty performance requirements. So there you go. Huh. Maybe uh, I can do a quick um, Wikipedia search for trainer T-X trainer. The TX program has been established to enable the United States Air Force to buy new a new two-seat jet trainer for fast jet, fast jet training to replace the Northrop T-38 Talon. So let's see what they say. What companies? Yep, Boeing. Oh, it's a Boeing Saab. Saab. Uh, I don't know. Uh, joint collaboration, I guess. Boeing Saab and uh, Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. Leonardo T-100, Lockheed Martin. Northrop Grumman BAE, Sierra Nevada slash TAI, uh, Stavetti Javelin, and Textron Airland Scorpion. Okay. Interesting. So, All right. I guess we're going to find out sometime soon what uh, the Air Force has picked for the next trainer. My, advanced my guess trainer. is it'll be an unmanned trainer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Unmanned. You know what? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, would, I would have loved to have uh, just done all my flight instruction from the ground. <laughs> yeah, for the TV screen at home. Yeah. I would. I probably still have my brown hair, not my <laughs> gray. <laughs> all right, and then finally this. Wow. So that, that U.S. controller was speaking Korean to the Korean Air Super. Wow. Flight. That's impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. So when I heard that, was I thought, he, well, I'm going to play that on saying, our show. two beers, please, my friend will pay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what it was saying. It's like, that's the only Korean I know, but hopefully it'll get us out yeah. of the situation. Only Korean I know is barbecue. Korean barbecue. Yeah. Which is pretty so, good, by uh, the way. That was kind of a reminiscent of the uh, uh, that incident that we talked about on our show uh, a few sh- episodes back, the uh, the Shamrock. Yeah, it's uh, a lot flight easier speaking Irish than speaking Korean, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, same kind of thing. They have those those very tight parameters, airspace uh, constrictions and stuff. And uh, yeah, but I'm sure that the Korean air pilots probably appreciated him as long as he was saying something aviation related. Yeah, uh, I'm true. sure they appreciated that. Um, anyway, I thought that was interesting. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. 
With that, I think now uh, it would be a good time for us to transition to one of the favorite parts of the show, which is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's start off with um, Christian sent in this. Speaking of Super 380s made by Airbus. Uh, since it first climbed into the skies, I've always thought that the A380 was a very neat machine. Sadly, I still have never flown on one, as Emirates is the only carrier to fly them on, into my home airport. And Liz's. Toronto must be it. And life hasn't taken me in the direction of Dubai yet. With news in recent years about its possible quick demise, I came across this interesting article about one of the first A380s which has been repurposed for wet leasing by... HiFly, and then he includes the article from Forbes. Uh, he says, uh, currently it's saving Norwegian's backside as it flies daily between Gatwick and JFK, while Rolls-Royce's engines keep some of their 787s grounded. As of August 24th, it's scheduled to ferry Air Austral customers from Paris to Reunion in the Indian Ocean, while one of their two 787s has its Rolls-Royce engines dealt with. It's great to see that there's a continued need for this 11-year-old king of the skies, as the A380 is often termed analogously to the B747 as the queen of the skies. Hopefully sometime in the not-too-distant future, I can get my own backside into a seat on an A380, preferably before the only place to see one is a boneyard somewhere. Keep up the keep the blue side up, eh? Christian base in the uh, Toronto area. And uh, there's an article from Forbes that he included here. And this picture, uh, APG crew, looking at the picture, I'm sure you're seeing that. It looks um, familiar. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, look I, think familiar? I, I think I may have seen this aircraft before in person. Yeah. Yeah, at Fombra in July. Very it, much so. When we were there. I don't remember the deck chairs. I, I don't either. But I'm done with one of those deck chairs. Or maybe that wasn't. I mean, Fombra. it was warm enough. Know. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. In the, going in. in the uh, caption here, it says that uh, it was at the Farnborough Air Show uh, on July 19th. So, okay. Yeah. And uh, the article talks about the, the high fly company and how they're using this uh, airplane and such. So, uh, we'll put that in the show notes so you can, you can read about it as well. And that's probably all we need to really say about that one right i think so yeah. it's a cool aircraft though cool paint job yeah Just if you're a fan of we, saving yeah we commented about that in fact dana was saying that he really appreciated the uh the the uh well the reef you know the, the, the reef the tribute, coral reef the, the tribute to the coral reef on one yeah. side and how beautiful it is and on the other side it was a uh a realization <laughs> the of, other side is is kind of obscene because it has something about the blue whale and no kind of, no 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 it's about, oh, about no. 50 years if we continue to pollute the earth <laughs> and what we continue to do is going to destroy the reef and and how it all be oh, dead so i'm sorry yes i'm i'm not going to go down the blue whale that was a different right idea. now but actually Jeff, yeah. like, uh, they have a separate aircraft dedicated to this <laughs> that was their second a380 that uh they had to repaint sam writes in is this you captain nick firstly nick I was following this car, see the attached photo en route to work this morning, and I thought it couldn't possibly be a coincidence. Have you seen 
Uh, let's see. Have you seen Sense and moved to Somerset? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there's that. <laughs> um, Somerset. What's he doing in an Audi? That's why. The Zyder Apples grow. Well, you know, Nick does drive an Audi, not this particular model. No, you, but, you uh, need to take the jaws of life to that to make it look even close to mine. So, uh, <laughs> cut the roof off. So explain, Nick, uh, to our um, audio-only folks what we're looking at in this photo. Well, it's it's an Audi who's looks like he's about to crash, but besides <laughs> the point. So um, it definitely could have been Nick driving, right? Yeah, oh, his, it could be. His uh, number plate finishes APG, which actually would have been a fantastic uh, number plate to have chosen, but I didn't. I went with uh, a number plate that uh, has the same number as the uh, one of the fighters I flew. So, uh, no, sadly, it doesn't finish APG, but it's a great thought. I'd love to perhaps have one in the future. Absolutely. Sam continues. Uh, anyway, just wanted to also say that I'm finally resuming my light aircraft pilot's license for motor gliders. So hopefully in the not too distant future, I'll have some more stories and photos to share. Oh, excellent. Best yes, wishes. Awesome. Yes. Absolutely. Thanks, Sam. Good eye, by the way. Hi, I. It must be part of the syndrome, maybe. Could be. Suffer. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, but I think with all sorry. that black squiggle of over his number plate, that plate's going to get pulled over by the police. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look very uh, official, does it? You know. Yeah, <laughs> very suspicious. Like people around here and, drive uh, around with, um, if they have a lost or stolen tag, they'll just write their registration number on a cardboard piece of cardboard and stick it on the back <laughs> of the car. I'm like, how is that even okay? <laughs> and I see it all the time. <laughs> Uh, apparently it's apparently working. Apparently it works. Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I have to go back and read the uh, rules go. for the Carolinas because I did not know that was something you could do. I've I've seen that also or in other parts of the southeastern United States as well. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe the police do pull them over and say, what are, what are you <laughs> that doing? That doesn't really work. <laughs> that doesn't work? You idiot. Uh, let's see. Andrew, speaking of uh, APG syndrome. Uh, hello, all. Discovered your podcast a few months ago, and I love it. I'm slowly picking through previous episodes, which I suppose definitely means a case of APG syndrome. APG syndrome. APG syndrome. Sorry, Andrew. Uh, again, we're, we're working hard for a cure, but we have not discovered one yet. Uh, Andrew says, I'm a U.S. expat living in Canada, Canadian wife, and have been employed in commercial aviation for a year now, starting as a Cessna 182 skydive pilot and am now flying international low-level geo surveys in the caravan. I've already learned a lot of airline industry tidbits from your show, and I really enjoy Nick's plane tales. Next time I am stateside, I would love to enjoy a beer with y'all. Anything stout for me, he says. Uh, earlier this year, I had the opportunity to ferry a Cessna 182 from Vancouver Island to Belize to fly skydivers for a few months and ferry back to Canada, 7,000 nautical miles round trip. If y'all are interested in reading my account of the journey, I've documented it on a blog. And his blog is entitled Rhythms in flight rhythm wait a minute rhythm 
Rhythmos in rhythm, flight. Rhythmos in flight. No, it's rhythms. Rhythm. Rhythmos in flight. Yes. Anyway, we'll put the link to that in the show note. Maybe that's a typo. Anyway, um, he said, oh, he sent a, a follow on piece of feedback. Um, I sent a previous email sharing a link to a WordPress site in regard to the ferry flight I took from Canada to Belize. And I realize it can be quite a long read for the short attention span reader of our modern era. Here are links to short articles published about the trip in the Airfacts Journal. And then that's from the AirfactsJournal.com website. So we have the long version in his actual blog and we have the shorter versions. Uh, So we'll put all of that together in the show notes where you can read about his uh, his journey. And that's, uh, that's pretty so just, fascinating. So just quickly, I pulled up the uh, blog because I hadn't taken a look uh-huh. at it yet. He did not take the route I thought he would take from Canada to Belize, which I thought would just take you directly over Mexico and into Belize. But there must be some reason why that wasn't okay. Yeah, went, I think I remember he went like all the way all down way through like the southern Florida, US right? into Florida, you know, across the Caribbean and Gulf there and then into Belize. Which I wonder if... I wonder why he, I wonder if he explains he, that. I think he does. His, He's got a thing about does, flight yeah. planning, but I, I, yeah. sorry, I haven't read it yet. I'll get to it, Andrew. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I, anyway. I think my curiosity and I will take a look at it because. Brilliant. I, I might point yeah. out to uh, Tarquin, who I think uh, is in the chat room, that uh, uh, whereas in Canada and North America you say tidbit, everywhere else in the world it's called titbit. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Just well, so Tarquin knows what we're talking about. <laughs> I, I, okay. I actually, I, I want to comment on this. And that is that if he's coming out of uh, trying to figure out where in Canada, did he say Vancouver where? Island, Vancouver? That's right. I was, I was reading through this. I, I remember reading it in, uh, in, the, in my emails. Um, Vancouver Island and the flying that he had done is got to be unbelievable because he went down the west coast of the United States, down through Mexico, down through into Belize. Um, so the the scenery that this gentleman got to see, um, Andrew is 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 a is amazing, and uh, my hats off to you, Andrew, because uh, I'm a former parachute pilot myself, jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, which is crazy, Doctor Steph. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would tune in on this and, and see what his trip was like, because it sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I was looking through, but I haven't come across it yet to find out why he, uh, uh, did not really overflight Mexico. Yeah. He did not take that route. Mm-mm. He went, he went all across the, way down the, to the southern U S down to Florida and then across the Gulf near how Cuba. Did, how did I miss that in reading this? I don't know. There was one on the way on the return journey. It talks about stopping in Cozumel, so he was in Mexico. Oh, so maybe, yeah, maybe he did. Uh, no, I was just reading through, through his information Mexico. here. What does it say that? I don't know. You know, honestly, I have not read all the details of it. So maybe he maybe went down one way and then came back. We prepared to really well to, to talk about your stuff here, Andrew. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, let's just delete all this stuff <laughs> from the. Uh, <laughs> I'll fix it in post. No, no I'm not going to do it. No, leave all this. Don't see it in what he what he wrote. So. Well, I think we're just encouraging everyone else to go and read it now too, because yeah. we've we've raised a lot of questions here. Exactly. See what we did there. We. <laughs> of course, I didn't click on the link, so that was my fault. 
Ah, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, now everybody is like, what the heck are these guys talking about? I'm going to go look myself. So, Andrew, we did you a favor, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> so click on the click on the link and uh, it'll be in the show notes, I'm sure. And follow yep. it out. That yes. one, that's 182. One, what year is that? Oh, it's an old one. I, uh, I flew in 1950. It looks like a 1950-ish. Yeah, I flew 1958-182 in parachute jumping. It was fantastic. I've Best jumped out of one about that. that hmm? I've jumped out of one about that age. Yeah, well. Vintage. It, it, that age, you might want to jump out of them. <laughs> That's even older than Nick and I. Yeah. That takes yeah. some doing. Yes, it does. It does indeed. All right. Moving on to uh, item number four. Ralph. This airline has declared only service animals can fly in the cabin, and that includes miniature horses. Well, then. I like that. Thank you. Passengers. Fly- Actually, that was a full size horse. But, you know, if, if you're a horse, horse person, you would know that passengers flying Southwest Airlines will have to deal with the company's new service animals policy, which includes cats, dogs and miniature horses starting on the 17th of September which is just coming up in five days. The only service animals that will be able to fly in the cabin of the Dallas-based company's planes will be cats, dogs, and miniature horses. No trying to embark peacocks like a woman did on United Airlines earlier this year. And no turkeys or snakes either. And those are just some of the animals that people have tried to bring on a plane, stating they were service animals. Unusual or exotic animals will not be accepted, it reads in the statement, detailing the company's new policy. Passengers will also have to provide credible verbal assurance that the animal is a trained service animal, together with a letter from a doctor or a licensed mental health professional. <laughs> I think that they should probably be going to before they do something Obviously, absurd like this. Yes. Mm. Cats, dogs and miniature horses must be on a leash or in a carrier at all times while on board, mainly to stop them disturbing the flight of other passengers. And for the latter, there are also restrictions based on size. To stay in the cabin, miniature horses must be under 86 centimeters tall and weigh no more than 45 kilograms. Does Southwest that mean anything to the small. average American? <laughs> no, it doesn't. I had to uh, look up. So 80, 86 centimeters is 33.8 inches or 2.82 feet. And That's... Did they really have this thing, miniature horses? And 45 kilograms, let's, you know. All right, so can can I interject here? Yes, please. Because I I saw something very interesting about the ADA. For those, it's American Disability Association, right? So beginning on March 15th, 2011, only dogs are recognized as service animals under the titles Chapter 2 and Chapter 3 of the ADA. So, you know, this whole thing to me is baloney if somebody is 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 of need of a service animal they've got to be properly trained and they've got to be properly certified under the american disabilities act so the people that are pulling all this as far as i'm concerned is that they're they're just trying to get their animals along for a ride so that they don't have to pay for for pet sitters or they don't need to, you know, their emotional support, you know, animals or whatever else. I'm sorry. Under the 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 United States government, only dogs as of September of March 15, 2011, any dogs that are recognized as service animals under the chapters, that's it. 
So horses, iguanas, monkeys, parrots, whatever else you want to bring on the airplane. Children. Children. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, this, this is the federal. <laughs> this is federal law. This is, Dana, you're such a hater. I know I'm a hater, but I'm sorry. You know, people are just. Meow. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm the biggest dog lover in the world. And, and God knows I traveled an awful lot with my dog. But come on. Really? As a, as a <laughs> emotional support animal, I know. Let's let's well, look at the definitions here under the law, and the law is is that only properly trained, specifically trained for disabilities, and people are abusing this because they think that they can get away with it. Uh, I mean, I'm just I'm so over this. Sorry. Slap him. Uh, Larry, 34 inches is the bottom end of the definition of a miniature horse. So a miniature horse can be 34 to 38 inches. So, Have you ever seen a miniature horse in real life? No. No. I'm looking at really for, for the Americans listening, uh, 45 kilograms is about 99 pounds. So in order to get, to get in, you've got to have a horse that's right at the bottom end of what is acceptable as being a miniature horse or what is usual. I think I had, used to have a dog about that size. You did. Milo was his name, right? Or Hooch. Hooch. Oh, I'm sorry. Milo, was that a movie? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, well, following this and very closely related, Larry Gregory sent us in this picture. And it is a sign that says service dog fraud is a crime. California Penal Code 365.7. Punishment may be up to a maximum penalty of $1,000 per instance and up to six months in jail. Please note that service service animals are defined by the ADA. Oh, this sounds familiar to me. Yeah, because I did some research when I saw this all. Yes, dogs that are individually trained to do work or perform tasks for people with disabilities. Service animals are working animals, not pets. The work or task a dog has been trained to provide must be directly related to the person's disability. So, you know, that supports what Dana was saying here. And I think maybe there is a I think there's a gray uh, or the reason why there's some confusion about this is that we all know what service animals are. This sign talks about it. But then we started allowing people to have emotional support animals as well. And they could be cats and birds and all kinds of crazy things. And finally, the airlines are saying, you know what? That's it. We're not doing that anymore. You know, it's probably I need too an, much too I need little an too late. Sport animal every time I'm in the damn cockpit. Sorry, they said well, damn, you know, but I mean, really, I, I need to have somebody up there hold my hand. You know, maybe it be my dog, or my cat, or my bird. No, one of the baloney. One of our re, uh, earlier shows, Dana, was entitled "Emotional Support First Officer." Mm-hmm. Well, I was that. I was that view for a long time, sir. Yes. And I've been, I've been lost without you. <laughs> You're probably better off without me. No, but I, I think, Dana, Dana, I think you make a really good point. I mean, if, if, you know, really, if the airlines want to have better control of this, following the law would be the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Logical. Logical, but also um, objective way to do this. So it there's no subjective or potential for, um, interpretation to go on. Well, let, let's face it. The airlines are really afraid of getting sued. 
and the publicity that comes along with it, especially nowadays when everybody has a video phone and they're taking videos and people are, are, are so um, disturbed by the fact that, that, you know, they're being denied their emotional support animal. And I get it. Believe me, I get it because, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of lost and, and I've been lost for the last two and a half years without my, my little dog in my life. And, and I understand it. However, there's got to be a line. And that line is, is what's legal, what's not legal, what can be defended in court, what can't be defended in court. And, 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 and my feeling is, is that if you really truly need an animal, well, it has to be certified by the ADA, trained by the ADA, and not allowed to attack people on, on the airplane, as we've seen at ACME. Okay. And then, of course, ACME is held responsible because, well, by the letter of the law, the ADA says the animal has to be a dog and has to be trained specifically for the person that has a disability. And so by in the court of law, now we're allowing people on the airplane with an emotional support animal, and we have no, no, really no leg to stand on. We really don't because we're not following the law. So I just. I, Which leg? Uh, first leg. To stand on. First leg. Okay. I <laughs> uh, just, I'm sorry. It, it, it just hits, it, it hits a nerve with me. I'm sorry. I could tell. Yeah, it, and, uh, it does because yeah. I get it. I understand it. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's really abusing what the true intent of the law and, and, and the, the people that are supposed to, to um, benefit by the use of a service animal, people that have been injured in, in war, people that have uh, severe disabilities such as uh, vision and, and uh, hearing and so forth that these animals are specifically trained to be able to do these jobs and it's kind of abusing what the whole intent of the ADA is and and I'm, I'm sorry I just I just really have a I, you know, I have a bone you know, isn't this not this is kind of akin to me of uh, the same emotional reaction I feel when I see somebody parking in a handicap or disabled parking spot true and from what I can tell, they're not disabled or handicapped, and I'm thinking they're just taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, I can't agree with you more on that, Jeff. I mean, it's just yeah. it's it's pretty it's pretty. Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm just gonna stop. Just gonna stop right now. Well, yeah, hey, I do have a quick. Oh, I know you're trying to move on here, but I do have a quick question for you guys. Um, because I see, I feel like I've noticed recently that I've seen fewer um, just animals in terminals recently. Uh, there used to, like a year and a half ago, two years ago, you couldn't walk through a concourse in an airport without tripping over someone's dog, whether it was an emotional support dog or just a you know an animal they were traveling with. And the last few times I've flown, I have not seen nearly as many animals in airports. And I'm I just wondering if you, you agree. I, I was just wondering if it disagree. I've seen a lot of animals. I haven't been out there a whole lot lately, but um, certainly when, when I'm out there, I see a whole lot of animals still. So I've seen when when the major carriers such as Acme and American United a um, few months back decided to start cracking down on this. Initially, I did see a, uh, a, a big reduction in the number of animals on board. And then I, I've seen it start creeping back up again. So I guess maybe they're still continuing to find loopholes or something like that. But I do agree, Steph, that in my personal anecdotal experience, uh, I've seen fewer uh, emotional support animals on board airplanes. So hopefully that's the trend. 
But Dana, I know you feel kind of upset and frustrated. Well, and I, I do because you know I'm my father was disabled and and uh, it, it hits a nerve with me. I mean, it, it as somebody well, that was actually disabled and um, even just going to the hotel and when they give me a, a disabled room, it it kind of hits a nerve with me. So. Well, the difference oh. over here, of course, is we never opened that door. So the yeah. only animals you can get on board uh, our aircraft are properly registered uh, blind dogs, seeing eye dogs, uh, and uh, assist dogs uh, that have been properly trained and properly registered. As it should be. Well, I, I was just going to say, because I know how you're, you're feeling right now, Dana, I want to I want to cheer you up. and I'm cheered up. I'm cheered the up. The best way to do that <laughs> is to play Plain Tales. The best part of the show, Plain Tales by the old dot pilot. Here we go. The old pilot's Plain Tales. Uncle Jeff. Some time ago, Nick Kidd from the Isle of Wight sent me a family memoir written by his uncle about his wartime flying in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War. Geoffrey Arthur Kidd and his twin brother John weren't poster boys for the RAF, but two from the hundreds of brave men who took to the skies in the night to fight a war not of their making, but one they were determined to win. Jeff's detailed description of the missions he and his brother undertook make fascinating reading, and I thank Nick for letting me turn his uncle's deeds into a tale. Jeff's story starts when his crew first came together to train on the Whitley, an aircraft that was almost obsolete by the start of the war and was retired from operational service in 1942. He joined Geordie Abbott, bomb aimer, Jimmy Thompson, navigator, Roy Ash, wireless operator, Doug Wilkinson and Paddy Irwin, both gunners. They trained initially by day, learning how to escape the aircraft if things didn't go well, doing circuits and dropping practice bombs. Hurricanes would practice attacks and they would go into their corkscrew defensive turns, guided by the gunners with calls like... Fighter, coming in on starboard. Stand by. Corkscrew, starboard, go. The old Whitley only had one turret, so the boys had to take their turns. Their night training was more difficult. Over a United Kingdom that was entirely blacked out. No visible lights from towns or villages. The only lights visible were from searchlights, helping to guide lost aircraft using the darky system. The little-known darky system was a system that used a special radio frequency to triangulate the aircraft using direction finders. You called out, Hello, darky! Hello, darky! Hello, darky! and gave your code for your home station. The nearest station would take over and instruct you to put your navigation lights on. Then the Royal Observer Corps and searchlight batteries would look for you. If they found you, they would raise their light straight up and then lower them to point at the next guiding light, and in that way they would light the path home. Pundit was another way of finding their way. Jeff mentions them in his story. There were very low-intensity red flashing lights known as pundits using Morse code. 
These were located near airfields, and a list issued to the navigator could be used to identify where we were. The night exercises followed a similar pattern of cross-countries, bombing and fighter affiliations, with assessments, criticism and analysis when completed. Nearing the end of our course, we were listed to operate a nickel. This was a full-scale op over enemy territory, dropping leaflets over Rennes in France. Some of our aircraft were shot at, but for us, the whole trip went smoothly. On our return, we were debriefed, and after handing our parachutes back in, we went off to breakfast and bed. When the course was finished, we went off to RAF Dishforth to fly our operational type, the Halifax. Paddy Irwin had deserted us, so we got a replacement gunner, Jim Hewitt from the Royal Canadian Air Force. We called him Paddy for the rest of his time with us, and we got a flight engineer as well, Jimmy Roper. We could now operate above 10,000 feet where the use of oxygen became vital. On one of our navigation exercises, Geordie went off to the Elson chemical toilet and despite being warned, he wouldn't take an oxygen bottle. He collapsed below the mid-upper turret where, luckily, Paddy saw him and gave him oxygen. He revived, but as he did, he lashed out at poor Paddy, but luckily he hadn't recovered his strength or was aware of where he was. Eventually our posting came through, and we went to Thamesford in Bedfordshire for special duties. Here we found out that this meant clandestine operations, dropping spies and supplies to the underground groups in any of the occupied territories in Europe. Supplies meant containers, packed with Sten guns, explosives, detonators and goods from first aid kits to vehicle wheels. The aircraft had been modified. They were missing the mid-upper turret and had a large hole cut in the floor covered with a divided door to allow the agents, that we called Joes, and supplies to be dropped with safety. Without a gun to use, our mid-gunner, Paddy, was sent on a dispatcher's course so that he could help launch the Joes and push the load through the hatch. We went in at low level, hoping to avoid interception, and in moonlight so that we could see the ground for navigation. We needed pinpoint accuracy to stand a chance of finding our drop zones, so while Paddy was away, we learned the techniques we would be using. We needed to find our way to a single field in enemy territory where a reception committee would be awaiting our arrival. They would have three handheld torches and would direct their beams towards the noise of our engines as we approached. When we found the field and saw the lights, we would acknowledge with a single letter in Morse using our downward ident light. A fourth torch would reply with a prearranged letter in Morse, which would identify them and our drop could begin. We flew a low racetrack pattern with undercarriage and flaps down to keep the drop area small and to make it safer for our Joes. We lined up on the three lights and on our first run, the bomb aimer would drop the load from the bomb bay. We repeated the circuit and on the second run over the lights, Geordie, the bomb aimer, would signal to Paddy by the hatch using a green light to launch the load or help the Joes through the hatch. 
Dropping into wind over the first torch meant the chute's opening would slow the containers down and they would drift on the wind back to the middle of the field. We dropped at only 800 feet, a safe height on a static line, but giving as little chance as possible to be seen from the ground. After a couple of training trips, including one with the special S-phones, uh, and we were ready to begin our tour of operations. Now, the S-phone was a special duplex radio telephone developed for the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, during the war. It was low power, but highly directional. So when directed at an aircraft, it had a range of 30 miles, but elsewhere the range was less than one mile, so that monitoring stations would have difficulty locating it. Being duplex, it allowed direct two-way voice communication and it was used to provide a secure channel for the exchange of orders and information. Jeff continues. On the 30th of April 1944, we flew our first operational mission. The briefing was a very individual affair. Army intelligence gave us information about the target using large detailed maps. We got particular information about the field where the reception committee would be and our load. RAF intelligence talked about the flak areas we could expect and we were given the colours of the day so we could identify ourselves to friendly fighters or to anti-aircraft guns by firing berry flares if we were shot at by our own side. We were issued with our escape packs containing currency for all the countries we would fly over specially printed silk maps and a few pet pills, caffeine tablets, to be used if we needed to on a long run. Finally, we got the weather brief on winds and conditions over the drop zone and at base for our return. After that, Jimmy, Geordie and I planned our route, picking features that we hoped would be easy to spot. We often picked water as a fix because it usually showed up well under moonlight. After the planning, we checked out the aircraft and its equipment. As work had to be done on our machine, it needed to be flight checked so that the whole crew were able to make an airborne check of everything. After return, our aeroplane was refueled and loaded for the night's operation. Climbing out that night over Littlehampton and over the channel, Jimmy was able to use G to give us accurate fixes. Now, G was a chain of stations that transmitted continuously and were one millisecond in transmission time apart, about uh, 300 kilometres in distance. On the aircraft, using an oscilloscope, the series of transmitted signals could be seen and the phase difference compared to give a series of intercepting arcs and therefore a position. Back to Jeff's story. When the G faded due to German jamming, we descended to very low level for the rest of the way to the field. Crossing the French coast, we could see searchlights from St. Valery and Dieppe looking for us. Where the lights crossed, we ducked underneath and fixed our position. Carefully, point to point, we passed fixes and Jimmy was able to plot our position. Eventually, we arrived at our final, carefully chosen pinpoint, where we set course directly for the rendezvous, timing the run with care. Towards the end of the run, Geordie and I could see the lights on the ground as we expected. When the correct letter showed, we knew we were in the right place, and we slowed, preparing to drop our load. 
Exactly like our training, I lined up on the lights and set my compass. Giving corrections, Geordie would call left, left or right, using two words for left to avoid confusion. Bomb doors open when over the first light, Geordie dropped the containers. Once more round and Paddy pushed out the load through the hatch floor and we were done. We still had to get home, avoiding flak areas, but having delivered our loads successfully, some of the pressure eased. Soon after crossing the coast, we were in G cover and with Eureka, a transponder system that used a pair of directional antennas on the aircraft to home onto a beacon guiding crews back to their base. After a seven-hour flight, we flew round the DREM circuit lights, which funneled us in for a safe landing. Now, those were developed at RAF DREM. The DREM lights were an outer white and inner blue circle of lights positioned around an airfield that led an aircraft round to a funnel of white lights that in turn drew the pilot towards the end of the runway. Jeff continues. After landing, we got a coffee and a tot of rum before our debrief. Then it was back to the mess for an operational breakfast of bacon and eggs, then to the billet for sleep. We were very satisfied to have been so successful on our first trip, and within a week our success was confirmed by intelligence when they got a message from the drop field. Now, Jeff's twin brother had mirrored Jeff's progress, and they were now both engaged on similar missions. Jeff continues. On one unusual operation, my twin brother and I were selected to operate a trip where two aircraft were required to deliver to a single target. We briefed together and then parted to plan our separate flights. He would leave half an hour after to avoid the risk of a collision. We had an extra crew member on board, an American, who would operate the S-phones. Once again, we found the target, and when the drop was complete, we continued until our passenger said he had finished, but he told me that the people on the ground wanted to talk to me. Using the aircraft intercom, I answered their questions. Uh, what aircraft are you flying? A Halifax, I replied. Uh, are more supplies coming tonight? Yes, my brother is about half an hour behind. These were easy questions, but the last one was, we have been waiting for four years, four years and a half. When are you going to invade and free us? Not so easy. At the time, the preparations for D-Day were obviously well advanced, so I hazarded a guess at a couple of months. Their response was one we all heard, and I'm sure we'll never forget. With their song fading in the background, it was time to leave the dropping zone clear for my brother. On the 18th of July, trips were listed for both me and my brother. We went through the normal preparations and set off before dark so as to reach the coast in full darkness. The route was into the country south of the River Loire, and this night we were followed by a fighter dropping flares trying to pick us up. We flew lower than usual so not to come between the flares and the fighter and be seen. 
Close to Nevia's, uh, lights came on in the town, and I felt that someone was trying to guide us on our way. We reached the RV, found the target, and dropped the load. After returning, we debriefed and went to bed as usual, but I was awakened a little later to find an airman with an officer supervising, packing up my brother's equipment and clothes. My heart sank. Oh, didn't you know, they said. Your brother didn't return last night. I took over the packing and then went to look for his bike by the Nissan hut. It had already been taken, a bit of a tradition when a crew went missing. Later we found that he had collided with a liberator over the target area where they were both supplying the same group. After the invasion, the French underground needed extra support, and which meant some very long trips. One we made to the south of Lyon took nine and a half hours. By the time we got back, we had already been posted as missing. I've never felt so physically tired since, and still recall my struggle to get to my billet, only a short walk. On another trip, they lit fires instead of torches, and the Morse reply was barely visible. As we made our approach, we could see vehicles moving. Then, in the middle of the lights and signals, there was a lot of concentrated flak with tracer all around us. Hey, Skip, it's bouncing off the fuselage, Jimmy shouted. To get out of range, I quickly pulled up the wheels and flaps, and the aircraft sank towards the river, so we were lucky to get away and return home. 38 operations flown, over 250 hours, all without any autopilot, always flown with the same crew. Only six failures to drop. Jimmy, our navigator, normally a happy, cheerful soul, had become introspective and morose, but when we finished our last trip, he quickly returned to his normal self. I only discovered the tension I was under when, a little later, I was travelling on a train at night. Waking from a nap, I was sure I was being shot at and prepared to take evasive action as if I was flying. Then I realised it was only sparks from the steam engine, and I felt lucky that I was in an empty compartment so I could recover myself. We dispersed to training units, but as a team we had collected two distinguished flying crosses and a distinguished flying medal. Yet none of us could have flown without the dedication of the ground crews, for never once did my aircraft fail me. When I visited my brother's grave in Marigny-l'Église near Avalon some forty years later, I explained why I was there to the mayor, and he took me to the crash site. At a memorial for the members of the underground who had been shot by the Germans at St. Aubin La Ferte. After speaking to an old marquisade about our flights, I was invited to lead the parade. It was good to know our efforts were still appreciated. Well, <clears throat> it goes without saying, Nick, um, you do uh, such a, an amazing job with those. Um, it just gets better and better the production thanks for values much, of these Jeff. things but uh, that was what a story for me that was an easy one uh, nick uh, gave me um a, a very personal memoir from uh, his uncle that ha hadn't really gone outside the family and uh, it was just 
a wonderful treasure of uh, detail and memories uh, for these remarkable missions that he flew. Um, but he wasn't, as, as I mentioned, he wasn't one of the poster boys. He was just a guy. He got a DFC, which is no mean thing, but he was just one of the regular pilots that just worked and did his job during the war. But it was a fascinating job, I must admit. I, I read you know, it with great interest. What struck me was very little said about the fact that his brother, you know, perished in one of these missions and just kind of went, okay, he's gone. Yeah, they cleared out his stuff. Let's move on. Yes. I, I wonder whether he just was one of those guys that didn't want to open up about that. Um, he went on to have a, a long and distinguished career as a civil airline pilot flying for, uh, uh, I guess it was British European Airways, ending up on the Trident and such things. So, I mean, he continued to fly, but I think a lot of guys from that period um, were quite stiff upper lip about it. So they, they, they weren't going to wear their emotions on their sleeve as we might do nowadays. And that was the story that, um, oh, I forgot the name of the person who sent it to you on the Isle of Wight sent to you a year ago. Nick Kidd. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I was out just, if he knew if he, uh, is still listening or knew. No, I haven't. I haven't heard okay. anything from him. I, uh, um, I mentioned it on the last show and I haven't had seen anything, but, uh, I mean, uh, he sent it to me and it was uh, sitting there in my little folder, which I haven't looked at for a while. And when I thought of something, I thought, oh, golly, I don't remember this. And, and then I looked at the date and went, golly, it's, it's been there a year. I need to do something about this. So, uh, I was glad to have the chance to do it. Yeah. yeah and I'm was, sure he uh, appreciated you, uh, even though it's been a year taking yeah. the time to do it and doing such a good job for it. Liz uh, thinks he might have sent some feedback in February, so hopefully he's still a listener. Excellent. I hope so. I mean, how could you not be? No. I'm sure he has the APG. <laughs> it's, it's very trivial. <laughs> well, I, I'm not a listener anymore. I never listen either. Oh. Yeah, well. <laughs> well, I have to listen to you guys for three hours every week, I no hate, matter what. I hate hearing myself <laughs> on the radio. Or I have to listen to you all and... Because every week I got to edit this darn thing. So oh, I four guess times over, right? Up. Yeah. I, I do my best to make everybody sound intelligent. I am sometimes not intelligent. I, I don't envy I've that I told task. you that a long time ago. <laughs> I am not intelligent. The only intelligent one on the show is Dr. Steph. Come on now. That's true. No, I say no. some very unintelligent things sometimes as well. No, I, I would say that if she were. The best of them. If she were, Dana, do you think she'd still be here with us? Probably, probably not, but that's why she's, she's known as HR. HR. <laughs> Fortunately, she's the only one with a level head on the shoulders. It's a charity mission on my part, I have to uh, admit. No. There is that. I think Thank it's you. community service for some old people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Could be. Uh, now, the, now we get closer to the truth. Maybe one day. Whatever it is, <laughs> we do, I'll we do appreciate tell it. I'll write Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Jim Howard uh, sent us in some audio regarding something to do with an F4, uh, almost shooting down a buff. Should we listen to that? Hello, APG crew and APG community. This is Jim Howard in Texas. And I thought I'd share with you a little story about the time uh, Air Force F4 almost shot down a friendly B-52. Before we can get to the story itself, let me give you a little background. As has been pointed out, I was just a navigator, but at least I was at the top of the navigator food chain as an electronic warfare officer. So how I got there 
was I went to what was then called Universal Navigator Training, where we were trained to at least the rudiments of navigating any airplane in the Air Force from a a, a C-141 to an SR-71 or anything in between. After Navigator Training, I went to another six months course in electronics called Electronic Warfare Training that concentrated mainly on radars and everything you could think to know about radars. Then I went to F-4 training I was trained in a F4E, just a plane on F4, and I got really lucky at the end of my basic F4 training because I was picked in the very first class uh, of wild weasel EWOs who were entered directly from training as lieutenants. We were called baby weasels. Prior to my class, you had to have at least one tour at a regular F4 before you could uh, be a wild weasel. What's a wild weasel, I hear you ask? A wild weasel is an airplane that specializes in locating and attacking radar based threats on the ground. Primarily surface-to-air missile radars, early warning radars, and anti-aircraft artillery gun-laying radars. My first operational weasel assignment was at Kadena Air Base in Japan in the F-4C wild weasel. The F-4C were older hard-wing F-4s, that is they had no leading-end slats, and they had been pretty much shot up, ridden hard, and put up wet during the Vietnam War. They had a primitive electronic system in it that could sort of locate the vaguely the direction that a radar on the ground might be located. You had no range information. So the F-4C weasel tactic was to basically fly around, hope that a SAM came up and lit you up, point at it, try to dodge the missile he's shooting at you, fire your crappy AGM-45 strike missile that probably would only irritate him if at best, and try not to be killed. We pretend to go in and bomb the thing after that, but how that well that would really work, I'm not sure. Not without a lot of losses anyway. But there was good news on the horizon. The F-4 had, the, excuse me, the Air Force had been developing a far more advanced wild weasel airplane, which came to be called the F-4G. I got into the F-4G in about 81. The F-4G was an airplane whose technology was 21st century. It was decades ahead of everything else. And in fact, I'd be surprised if anything other than the F-35 or possibly the F-22 could match the ability of the F-4G to locate in both azimuth and range in a few seconds, pretty much any radar on the ground from very low frequencies to very high frequencies. The way it did this was It had a system called the APR-38 Weasel Attack System that was run by what was then a cutting-edge computer, the IBM 4Pi, the same one used in the first editions of the Space Shuttle and the Apollo Moon Lander. It had hand-wound core memory, if you knew what that was, and later was replaced with solid-state memory. But even so, they had a genius at uh, McDonnell Douglas who wrote the software for this, and that thing, if it picked up radar pulses, it knew roughly from the inertial navigation system, how high the, the uh, airplane was above the ground. It could measure the angle of arrival of radar pulses, compute a little triangle with some trig, and then display it on a round indicator that would show a symbol corresponding to that radar because it would identify the radar, put a symbol like an SA-6 would be a 6 or an SA-4 would be a 4, whatever. And it would put it at the range and bearing of where that radar was relative to the F4G. So it was basically kind of a reverse radar. And it was astounding how good it was. 
It was also coupled with, with a missile called the AGM-88 Harm high-speed anti-radiation missile, which was itself very advanced. And in fact, they still make it, and they're making more advanced versions of it all the time. It's still a mainstay of the uh, U.S. military defense suppression airplanes. So you could, uh, in the Weasel, you could cruise along. You could pop up and sniff for signals and go back down, or you could come in at high altitude, whatever. You would see any radar that was daring to operate around you. And since the Harm had a lot more range than the AGM-45, you didn't always have to fly within the heart of the SAM envelope to fire the missile at it, which was awfully comforting. So that's what an F-4G was. Let's go to the early days of the Gulf War in uh, Desert Storm. I believe that was 1991. There was a strike package in the early days ingressing uh, Iraq. There was a B-52G, tail number 580248, was motoring in at at high altitude where those guys fly and he's got his tail gun radar active now the g model thankfully for the way this worked out the the uh, gunner set in the main cabin alongside the navs and the ewo rather than back right in the tail like the earlier delta model b-52s did and that's going to be important so anyway the tail gunner's back there. His radar is in acquisition mode, so it's not locked on to anything. It's just looking to see if any any airplanes want to sneak up behind it and shoot at it. Meanwhile, there's an F-4G there, and he is looking for radars on the ground. As the strike package is approaching his target, this is what I believe happened based on things I read at the time and talking to a few people who had at least some knowledge of this. He did what's called a preemptive harm attack. The G, if the radars on the ground stay totally silent, which is often what they'll do, and they're hoping, and they're either using spotters on the ground or some other method to determine when strikers are close to the target. If it's the target that SAM site's defending, we want to discourage the SAM operator from turning his radar on as the strikers enter his engagement envelope. So to do that, we pull the F-4G's nose up and launch the AGM-88 harm into a very high ballistic trajectory. So the harm flies way up into the air, points down at the ground and starts looking for something to kill. And it really likes to kill things. My hand just went up and over like a ballistic trajectory. You have to imagine that. And then it, as it comes down, the seeker wakes up and the harm starts looking for something to kill. And it's a very aggressive mi uh, missile. In this particular mission, the harm looked down and said, oh, I see a AAA radar. I'm gonna kill it. So zoom, and it goes, and it's a very fast missile. It's not faster than a SAM, but it's pretty fast. So it does this high-speed thing headed for what it believes to be a AAA radar, and explodes right behind B-52G-0248. It severs off the whole tail gun assembly, which is, thank goodness, there's no gunner back there at this time and damages the rudder and horizontal stabilizer to the B-52. But because it's a B-52 and they're essentially immortal, the B-52 limps back to Saudi Arabia. The embarrassed F-4G crew has planning to do when they get down. And everybody parted friends in the end, I think. At least that's the story the weasel guys are telling me. I'm not sure about the buff guys in their heart of hearts. But that's the kind of thing that happens in a war. There's a lot of fog in a war. 
So when you point your weapons, whether it's your BB gun at Cub Scouts or your AGM-88 missile from your growler, be careful what you point it at. And this is Jim in Texas. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Jim. Great story, even though it was from just a navigator. I love that story. That's really cool. Yeah, I know. Jim. Very well, probably have the best um, Very well done, Jim. Yeah. Very yeah. well done. Good effort for a nap. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, don't listen to those guys, Jim. Especially just... done. I mean, if you listen to the auto, audio on that, that was really good. Uh, he always does a very professional job. It was really good. Which is why I suspect, I'm not sure he was a navigator, really. Yeah, they, they can barely string two words together normally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they are technically proficient. Yeah, Yeah. well, they only give him two buttons, mate. One for his left hand, one for his right. So. <laughs> what do I know? Like I'm an Airbus pilot? Guy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Hey, how do you problem. land on the wrong runway? You shoot the approach to the wrong run- runway as an Airbus pilot. Come on, you have the best navigation in the world. Oh, you, you mean you just, uh, the, the aircraft's got better navigation equipment than a Boeing? Oh, I'm very impressed. Well, Thank you for, well, for saying that. Aircraft, Boeing, I'm going to that. Boeing you know. must be awful. <laughs> well, it I is. Think I have the Airbus is made for idiots. Have the best navigation equipment. Who? Yeah, it does. That. Which one? Actually, any GA aircraft, just full yes, flight well, and an iPad. And the G one thousand is far superior. G one thousand is amazing. Hey Jim, thank you very much for that story. It's always good to hear from you. Yeah, and uh, fascinating. I I had heard of that story because uh, do you remember the buff uh, pilot that we chatted to at Pittsburgh? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. He he told me that story. Oh, very good. Yeah, and he gave us the uh, extra special tour of the. Uh, the uh, super super duper extra special too. Yes. Yeah, great. What, do you remember what his name was? Mm. Oh, he had some kind of a really int- with his... interesting nickname. Yes. I I oh my gosh! No, I'm drawing a blank now. Go back and see if yeah. I. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. Steph will research. I'll, that. I'll research. She is. I'll she is the youngest one. In... Of, it's pretty sad because you are the youngest one of us all. In, I've in, never claimed that my memory is any good. You should still have your faculties. I can't remember Balconies. my name. Come on now. <laughs> uh, hey, remember we were talking about flying under the Golden Gate Bridge? Somebody had asked about that. Oh, I wish I wish you'd never got onto this damn subject. Well, we got a little we bit have of feedback a on it, Nick. A lot of feedback on it. We're just going. <laughs> we're going to quickly go through this. Chris uh, from the UK says, "I'd like to offer some discussion." Um, on a trip to California, my wife and I were both amazed to see what we assumed to be a flight seeing helicopter fly under straight under the bridge. And uh, let's see, here's a blog post which contains both a, des- a description and photos of one of these under bridge flights. And then he puts the link here and uh, an em- embedded f- um, video as well. And so uh, apparently he's providing evidence to us, including uh, Part 91 General Operating and Flight Rules, uh, part of the uh, regulations. Stephen has a picture of several uh, helicopters flying under the Golden Gate Bridge. So we have photo evidence here. He said, I heard your request for the of the helicopter flying under the Golden Gate Bridge, and I found them. The first tour my dad took of uh, San Francisco helicopters aircraft diving down to fly under the bridge and flying under the bridge. And the next three are pictures my brother took at Fleet Week 2011 and the USS Carl Vinson 
coming under the bridge with a SH-60 Seahawk flying off of her port side. And he says, and remember, pictures or it didn't happen. So he has some pictures for us there. Tim, he went ahead and put in his two cents as well. He says, there's been a lot of discussion of late about flying or aircraft flying under the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And uh, he also provided some photographic evidence. And he works for Acme Construction. And he said that they shared the same hangar with San Francisco helicopter tours. Incidentally, the same hangar that Amelia Earhart departed from. Hmm. Wonder if they have any responsibility for the disappearance. And uh, finally, yeah, Gus uh, sent in some video for us. He said, this email is for Captain Nick, who demanded evidence of of a helicopter actually flying under the Golden Gate Bridge. This is a video uh, taken about two years ago while crossing the bridge by foot. This, of course, is a tour helicopter that flying above the bay at about 500 feet. And right before reaching the bridge, it goes into a dive to go under it. Do you believe us now? <laughs> and this is Gus from uh, Argentina. It wasn't Gus the guy that uh, had the helicopter, I mean, the uh, not helicopter, the airplane dismantled and shipped to him in Argentina and then had to put it all back together. That sounds familiar so. to me. Definitely yeah. someone in South America. Yeah. Big place. It is. And I think he was at uh, Sun and Fun. And I think that uh, Mike um, actually interviewed him. And that's why we know about this. So I think we can safely situation. assume that some people have done it. Yeah, I think that this kind of overwhelming evidence, Nick. Yeah, yeah, that, well, uh, actually, if happens. you look at the pictures, it might all be the same hel- helicopter. Um, so I wouldn't say <laughs> they haven't just be the one uh, well. tour operator. But uh, yeah, um, I'm just wondering if it's legal or not. Ah, oh, shoot. I thought we were finished with this. <laughs> yeah, we're finished. All right. I accept it's legal. And now, well, <laughs> I don't you. know. I haven't seen anything uh, to actually say it's legal. I've seen pictures now of, of helicopters flying under the bridge. So I acknowledge it's happened. But uh, is it really legal? Okay. What do you guys yeah. get to work? I out think there, you folks. should um, ask the FAA directly. Uh, surely they listen to our show. I'm sure we'll get feedback from them uh, within the next yeah, few probably weeks. Probably do. Yeah, actually. or never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I, as far as I'm concerned, case closed. They have flown under the bridge. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'm much appreciated. And hey, the uh, yes. B-52 pilot's name was Streak. Oh, that's right, Streak. Yeah. How could we forget that? Yes. What a great guy he was. Ah. Oh. And. Yeah. Wasn't that a lot of fun? I'm just remembering now that, uh, what was the name of that place that we went to that uh, we did that game? What? Um, <laughs> place we no, went to? We did the, that something game. oil and lube. Um, Staker, uh, steak Quaker steak and lube. Yeah. Remember we, and there, there was a game we were like putting our cards against our forehead and uh, how can you not remember that Cause, stuff? Uh, I remember. Because I don't you remember. Because do? I was did drunk. We, did I play that there? Yes. I played that game many times. <laughs> yeah, where we were. Oh, come on. No, really? I do remember playing that there. I'm giving Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yes. But it was yeah, at thank Quaker you, Liz. Steak and Lube. <laughs> Quaker State and Steak and Lube. That was uh, one of the most fun times I've had since being involved in APG. You're easily yes. pleased. 
I am. <laughs> I'm a simple man. Okay. Uh, Artie uh, sent us some audio feedback. Let's listen to what he has to say slash ask. Hello, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. Good afternoon. My name is Artie and I'm working for the famous European airline called Ryanair. I'm based in Canary Islands, which is just west of the Western Sahara, closer to Africa than to mainland of Spain. And I'm also doing my ATPL license. I'm almost finishing my ATPL exams and I have about 160 flying hours until now. So I'm almost finishing. If you don't mind, I would like to ask you three questions. And the first one would be about defueling. For example, how long... Wait a minute. Three questions already? We only allow one. No, I'm just kidding. Monty Python say uh, you have to ask three questions. Oh, do oh okay. Yeah. Well, then, Monty in this case, we'll let... I asked you question three. <laughs> Is that the one where uh, he says uh, a, a, a an African or European swallow? Swallow. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> For example, how long does it take to defuel an airplane? Is it a very very long process? Do you cause very big delays with that because you need to call the defueling trucks? They need to install all the equipment, I guess, and all these things. And also, can you give us some examples of why would you need to defuel an airplane? I can probably think of only two. The first one may be getting some extra passengers on board the aircraft or maybe some extra bags. Or second one, maybe the weather is turning very bad and you become limited by your weights, so you need to defuel a little bit if you can. Any other examples? And the second question would be about how strict are your airlines with you keeping your speeds and a very good economical flight how how strict are they on you trying to fly as economically as possible because for example in Ryanair they are calling the captains every week when they are exceeding the speeds when they are, when they are not doing a very very good job when they are not flying exactly by the manuals so for example a lot of times we have some captains that want to take us home very very quickly so they accelerate the speed above the recommended speed. And then one week after, they get a call from base captain asking, Captain, why did you increase your speed on this and this flight? And the re- response is usually, ah, because ATC asked me to increase the speed. Okay, that's okay then. Does that happen to your airlines as well? Or is it just Ryanair that is so strict with all these things? And the third last question would be, about any advices for a first officer becoming a captain. As you know, with Ryanair, you can become a captain very, very quickly. I think it's about three years. So imagine you finish your ATPL, you get hired by Ryanair, you become first officer. After three years, you're a captain. That's a very short time, in my opinion, which is a good and a bad thing, probably. But because it's such a short time, you probably need to learn a lot of new things and develop some stronger characteristics and personalities. So what would your advices be for a first officer becoming a captain? What kind of behavior you need to learn to adopt and what kind of personality and so on? Uh, Thank you for your replies. And also I need to congratulate you for doing this very beautiful podcast since a long, long time. I've been listening to you for about five or six years now. And uh, time is flying. It seems like it's been only one year or something. And also, I need to say I'm very impressed with Dr. Steph. She's 
incredible. She is a pilot, a doctor, and she has plenty of sports. She's always busy, and that's impressive. So thanks to all of you. Keep up the good job, and thank you. Hey, thanks for those uh, kind words, Artie. Stop! Who would cross the bridge of death must answer me these questions three. Eh, the other side he see. Ask me the questions, bridgekeeper. I am not afraid. What is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, before Jeff cut me off there, I was saying sorry to, to Artie. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, thank you for those kind words. And thanks for your feedback. But I think most of the uh, answers will come from the other guys, not me. So I can tell you that at Acme, we don't have people tracking our speeds on our flights and asking us why we didn't fly the at least i'm not in my experience dana have you been no i haven't but uh i think if you well i'm not gonna say anything so (laughs) so basically let me just say this what dana is thinking (laughs) so and i think you've all heard me say this before but when i was new at acme airlines i was based in new orleans for the first two months and the last flight of whatever trip you were on, they termed it the Cajun Concord uh, because we were flying that darn thing supersonic, getting back to New Orleans. <laughs> At least the wings were. <laughs> yeah, I was. I swear to you, I was really concerned that the wings were going to fall off. I mean, I'd never <laughs> seen. If I'm not melting the paint off the nose and the <laughs> leaning edges of the wings are not glowing red. I'm not doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it happens, uh, I can uh, say with surety. And uh, fortunately, nobody has ever questioned anybody about that. The 88 I, does I, fly Mach 0.81. i just say that. Yeah, there, there are times <laughs> when you get it like going a, a little bit. I know a little bit. that'll fly faster than that. Than uh, scheduled. <laughs> it's not a fast airplane, Nick. Come on. <laughs> no, it is not <laughs> a fast right. airplane. When you get up around 8, 8 one, um, you get this. Uh, tuck. Yeah, this vibration too that is like it's a weird kind of turbulence. It's like try, trying to drive the Jeep too fast yeah. over like 75 miles and an hour. And then you realize, oh, yeah. I see what's going on here. We're going well, faster I will, I will than the admit, airplane the wants to fly. Slotation is the slowest airplane I've ever flown. Slotation being citation. citation. You know, oh. you're cruising along at Mach 0.64. It's like, oh, really? We ever can get there? Hmm. Yeah, it's terrible. Hey, but you know, well, I don't know about the corporate world, but in the airline world, we get paid by the minute. minute but on yeah. the last flight, that all goes out the window. <laughs> it doesn't matter at that point. It's like, yeah, I, I, yeah, a few more dollars or home. I'll take home. That's why I like being captain now, because I get to choose and decide that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But when so, you get caught, there's only one bloke they're going to blame. Yeah. The captain. You know, you know, honestly, I as, as since I've been a captain, I just fly it the way they tell me to fly it and you know what uh, the difference between you know being there at a certain time and five minutes early it really doesn't make much difference. Well, it's, all, you know, it's all well and good being early until you get there and don't have a gate to park at that's exactly what that's i true. was gonna say steph yeah well jeff nick yes. steph we have this thing called the 
target landing window. Yep. And I always want to be within that. So mm-hmm. if I'm not in it, I'm going to speed the airplane up. If I'm yeah. They, they it, actually expect I'll us slow to. the airplane down. Maybe. That's right. But anyways, I mean, that target landing window is where I need to be in. So there are many times that I'm beyond that. And so I want to get back into that. So I'll speed the airplane up appropriately to get the airplane within the target landing window. Yeah. Yeah. And they, that's what they expect us to that's do. Actually. Exactly what they expect us to do. Yeah. We're, we're not going to be called in for doing something like that because that's what they want us to do. Yeah. And then um, air traffic controls tells me, tells me, you know, what's your max forward airspeed? Oh, eight Oh seven, nine. Yeah. Depending on my altitude. Seven, nine. I usually say. Yeah. yeah, seven nine is pretty much what I can do, depending on altitude. Certainly. So um, the the other question he asked, um, he asked three actually. It's about um, defueling. Defueling. I that's something that I really don't have a lot of experience with. I don't know if I've ever had a situation where we've actually had to defuel. Well, have you? I, I do. I do know of some something that we would have defuel for. And that is for taxi fuel. If they have to move the aircraft for towing, I said taxi improperly, it's towing. If they have to tow the aircraft off the gate, then they have to put some fuel in the center tank to maintain balance on the aircraft. Okay. So that would be a situation where if there's enough fuel on the aircraft that they would actually have to either transfer or defuel the aircraft in order to be able to move the aircraft. So, for example, a very short flight from like Birmingham to Atlanta, and we have to put extra fuel in the aircraft just to push the aircraft off the gate so it doesn't go on its tail, um, there would be a possibility that we'd have to defuel the aircraft in order to take fuel out of the center tank and maintain the amount of fuel that's required to go from Birmingham or Huntsville, one of those short flights over to Atlanta. That would be a defueling situation where it would require to defuel out of the center tank and uh, um so, answer the question. That's that's one of the answers that we could possibly defuel for, beyond what you're talking about. I'm going to say that uh, we, I've been in the situation where we have exceeded our max takeoff weight on occasions. Um, once was through a uh, loading error, but it was picked up before we got airborne, uh, and um, we had to we lose a ton. So, uh, you know, you you could. In theory, you could taxi back and uh, uh, defuel, but defueling is a nightmare. First of all, it's it's difficult. You've got to get a bowser. You can't do it through the normal refueling hydrant system that we have uh, at all the gates. So you've got to get bowsers up there. And when you take the fuel off, um, you can't do anything with it. Once it's been in an aircraft, it's considered unusable. You can't then stick it in another airplane. Um, it's got to go through the um, check system that uh, applies between the tanks and the aircraft. And once it's been on board and they don't know what it's been mixed with, what what water there might be in the aircraft, what other fuel they might have had left in the aircraft, it's now an unknown quantity and they will want to ditch it. So it's very expensive. It's slow because, you know, the system isn't really designed to be put into reverse, as it were. Um, And uh, generally speaking, what we did was either go off uh, heavy, but, of course, if you're limited by max takeoff weight, you're not going to do that. What you're going to do is uh, just sit there uh, and 
burn the engines until you've burnt the fuel that you've got too much of. Um, so, yeah, uh, our company, um, I've never been in a situation where they've actually accepted the fact that they will defuel an airplane. The engineers say it's a damn nightmare. Um, if you, for example, you've got to find an empty tanker, empty bowser to stick in, or the uh, fuel you put into the bowser uh, now contaminates the fuel that's in the bowser, um, and you've got to throw that whole lot away. Uh, so it just and where do you stick it? The uh, the fuel farm don't want it because they they <laughs> want fuel of a known quality and situation. So uh, it's it's a very rare thing to do, and uh, you know it, it only usually happens through an an error because uh, someone has put too much weight on, put too much fuel on to start with. And generally speaking, we will leave cargo behind rather than try and defuel an airplane. So I actually had the experience of uh, riding on an aircraft that was over its uh, max takeoff weight, leaving Farnborough. Oh, really? And we, yep. We sat for about 20 minutes to burn the, I forget exactly how much it was now. They gave a number in pounds, which I don't remember off the top of my head, but it took about 20 minutes. We just sat on a uh, taxiway. Yeah. It's simpler and usually quicker that way. Uh, it may not yeah. be quite as nice for the atmosphere, but, uh, you know, you've got to get rid of the fuel somehow, and it's probably better than, no, well, it isn't probably better than throwing it away. It's probably better for the engines not to be running that length of time. And But, uh, no, um, it's it's hated by the company. It's hated by the engineers, hated by the pilots when you end up in this situation. But it only usually happens through a a, a loading error or a paperwork error when you're doing the load sheets. Yeah. Just going back to, thank you, Steph, for finding that photo that I'm presenting now. Yeah, on it's the, actually Nick's video. photo, which I stole from him, but. Yeah. Well, look <laughs> at that. Captain Nick Anderson photography. Aha. Uh -huh. um, there's a uh, photo of Streak and uh, the lovely Miss Stephanie and two other blokes. Yeah. <laughs> Brings back a lot of fun, fond memories. What was the third question that uh, Art, uh, Artie asked? Uh, the defueling. Please help. <laughs> Some, oh. Someone help us here. <laughs> oh, come on. The other question uh, was, uh, as, he, as he asked it, I thought this is going to be a really difficult question, but it was something that you guys were going to answer, not me. <laughs> that's That's lame, Nick. Yeah, but it's true. Awesome. I didn't write them all oh. down. I, I mean, I have my notepad ah, and I write down Liz, everything Liz on. Comes to the rescue. I did not Thank write you. all three of them. Our producer yeah. comes to the rescue. She's paying well, attention. From captain to first officer. That may be me, actually. Yeah, I would say so. Yes, it's it's very likely in the very near future. Within the next year, I very, very well may move back to first officer. But he's talking about going from first officer to captain. You know, moving captain to from FO. Oh, no, I read it wrong. No, actually, what he said was moving FO to captain. Progressing, mm -hmm. as you just did. And he said it, it only took us, like, he said he thought three the years. average was three years. At well, it, yeah. it only took me three years. Uh, and I'd come out of the military flying fighters, and that's how long I spent in Acme Red before I got my command course. I, um... I think I could have done it about the 10 year point for Acme, but I decided I wanted to fly the uh, 7.2 and not the 
DC nine captain. So I waited, I, I was about 12 years for me. And, and personally I waited an extra three years to upgrade just so I could have quality of life. And just as soon as I yeah. upgrade what they do, they knock about 200 guys below me off the scenario list. So I'm going to be about 50 from the bottom. So, um, you're not the bottom though. That's no, that's, part. that is the key. I am not the plug, yeah. but the reality is, is that, uh, you know, progression as it goes, um, you know, as you sit in the right seat as a first officer, you learn a lot and you learn from the captains that are really good, such as uh, my friend sitting right there, Jeff. Um, and you learn from some people that are not so good and I'm not going to mention any names. Um, but the reality is, is that uh, you, you develop your own style, your own way of uh, leadership. And, uh, you know, as a first officer, you have the opportunity to, to observe different captains and different leadership styles. And then you can take all of those and mold them into what you want to be. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy about being captain now, which is very short lived, hopefully not. Um, and I say that in a very positive light because I don't actually think I'll, and, and I'm hoping that it's not going to happen, that I'll go back to first officer. Um, but one of the things I really enjoy about being captain is that, as a first officer, you have to be really a true chameleon. And a true chameleon is that you have to adapt to the crew situation, the captain. You have to do what you need to do as a first officer to make sure the captain in, in is um, um, represented well, that you try to support the captain in every way you can and make his life as easy as possible or her life. Let me rephrase that um, as easy as possible, because that's what your job is as a first officer, because you're there to support them. But you're also there to question them as a first officer, because, you know, if they're making a decision, you look at them and say, all right, well, why are you making the decision decision again? That's as a new captain, I expect my first officers to do. So, what I enjoy most about being captain is the fact that I get to set the tone. I'm sure Jeff can agree with that. And, and, and I've learned that from, you know, the likes of Gary, likes of Jeff, likes of my friend, Tony, uh, you know, you, if you set a positive tone right up front, you find that your crew works with you great, that you, you know, have great results from the people around you, that they support you and you're not alienating people. So moving from the right seat to left seat, um, is, is a big deal. It, it's a, it's a huge achievement in life, but you know, the, the biggest thing that, that people need to, uh, uh, pilots, not people, pilots need to realize is that as you, well, pilots are people too. Yeah. Well, they are too. Yes, that's correct. And so on surgeons. So, um, you know, the, the big thing is, is that you learn from the people that are your mentors in life and that you hope to emulate them so that, when you show up as a captain, the people that around you respect you and hopefully support you so that you make the right decisions and make the, you know, not necessarily the right decisions, but well, yes, the right decisions, but also the most appropriate decisions. That's the word I was looking for. I had to think about that for a second. The appropriate decisions decisions in what you are trying to accomplish, and that is uh, in, in our business is customer service and safety. Those are the two things I focus on, safety being number one, customer service being number two. Well said, sir. Um, and I think everybody would agree with this, that uh, well, at least for 
Dana and I, um, the important thing was as we were new hires at our major airline, we uh, witnessed and experienced what it was like to fly with certain captains and how they managed the crew and how the tone that they set and the way they flew the airplane and the way they interacted with the passengers. And we got to witness that. And then we look at that and think, I'm going to put this in the column of this is the way I want to do it. And I'm going to put and the bigger column was the one that said, I'm not going to do this when I'm a captain. And then when you become a captain, then you employ all of those things that you've learned over many, many years of being a second officer and a first officer. And I still, to this day, one of the most impressive things for me when I was flying with certain captains was the way they flew the airplane and when they were hand flying the airplane so smoothly. And even when they were flying with the auto flight system engaged, the way that they flew it, you could, if you were sitting back in the passenger cabin, you'd never know when we were climbing or descending or turning or anything. It was just so seamlessly smooth and that has always been a really high priority for me and uh, to this day I still remember those captains that uh, just uh, impressed me with their flying abilities and uh, also the ones that were uh, really good at the uh, passenger relations and uh, you know engaging the passengers and keeping them informed and all that and what's what's amazing, Jeff, is that the fact that you've learned from them and I've learned from guys like yourself. I mean, I mean, reality is, is that it's passed down generation to generation to generation. I pride myself on the fact that I get got to fly with guys like yourself. And then, you know, one of the most important things, and as I, I was listening to the earlier um, emergency, emergency situation with the girl in Beverly, was it Meredith? Yeah, it was her name, Meredith. Uh, Maggie. Maggie. Maggie, I'm sorry. Yeah. I blew, I knew it began with an M. Yeah, so, start with an M. But yeah, began with them. So I'm terrible with names. That's my number one fault is names. But anyways. No problem, Dave. No, no Peter. Uh, so anyways, Peter Paul and Mary. <laughs> anyways, <laughs> you know, as, I, as one of my first instructors ever told me is smoothness counts. That was one of the most influential things that was ever said to me in my entire flying career smoothness counts so as i listen to you talk about the captains that influence you and how they flew the aircraft right so generations gone by you're now that guy and i learned from you and guys like yourself in in what to do and what not to do so it goes down and continues to perpetuate itself to become you know, what we are training our next generation to do. So, yep. you know, it, it's, you are that guy now to me and I've learned from you and, you know, I've never flown with Nick, but you know, in our conversations with, with Nick and, and uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I do apologize to the background noise because that's the garage door being closed. Ah, uh, we don't hear it, Dana. Just yeah, shut, I can't right. hear it. I'm, I'm shut up. Good. Well, you've heard it before. So, anyways, um, the reality is is that you know we are all individual teachers, and we need to be that 
positive influence in people's lives. And that's what I choose. I choose not to be a negative influence in anybody's life. And I choose the positive captains that I've dealt with in my past. And I choose to emulate those guys versus the people that are naysayers and choose to have a negative, negative con, you know, in that negative cockpit. I say that cautiously because a flight deck is on top of a aircraft carrier. Um, so cockpit is where we, you know, we work and that's, that's the bottom line is that we are, um, coddling, if that's a proper term, the next generation. And, and, and I've learned that that's one of the things that the first officer they've learned. And I've spent 14 and a half years as a first officer. So I've learned how to be a good chameleon, how to learn from others and how to emulate the ones that are really successful, as you've mentioned. Yep. Captain Nick. If you're going to be, uh, if you're going to crash, make sure it's smooth. Um, so <laughs> I was, I was just, I, I realized that I, I sounded a bit arrogant there when I said that I did my command in three, in three years. It was true, but it wasn't a, a matter of, of skill or ability on my point. It was the fact that the airline doubled its size in in three years so commands came around as fast as they you could cope with them as long as you had the hours uh, and you had the everyone had the seniority uh, by then so, you know you were just uh, you know offered a course and away you went so uh, and it was a quite a remarkably steep learning curve for me i really um i i had i didn't find it an easy progression to uh, the left seat by any means. But uh, no, I think it's all great advice. Uh, and I think uh, for everyone, it's a slightly different journey. But uh, I think uh, if if you've got a decent uh, head on your shoulders uh, and a reasonable pair of hands, I think you've got a good chance of doing it. And I think the, the advice that uh, Dana has given is brilliant. If, if you're going to be uh, have a little bit of humility and you're willing to learn from others, uh, then just pick the right people to uh, take the lessons from and follow them, and you'll do very well. Yeah, and, and Nick, you're not arrogant in any way. I mean, no. just, I, I have to say that, listen, you have a lot of great experience in, in which you built upon and probably a fantastic captain to fly with. Um, just the fact that you weren't a first officer for very long doesn't mean you don't have a whole lot of you know, of, of experience and knowledge to build upon. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm finding is I'm flying with some military guys uh, here as of recent is that, you know, days gone, gone, gone old is that, you know, military guys were, were not very ver well versed in the civilian world. And uh, that, that is a small, small piece of the pie, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate, uh, end of the whole story is is you know are you a good captain do you care about the people that are around you do you support your crew and do you make the right decisions really so that's those are the important things so you know the difference between you and myself is that i've spent a long time as a first officer you have a lot of military experience and a lot of decision making to go along with that and i've built upon all the years as a first officer to help me to establish myself as a captain and I didn't have all those military years and all those defining moments to help me to build my captainhood. So essentially, we are we we really are the same. We really no, are I the same. I did I did not in any way take 
your comment about upgrading in three years as arrogance at all, because this is the industry that we're in. You know, it's just uh, all about timing and, uh, you know, expansion and you yeah, know, where I think, you are. I think especially now you're going to see people with very quick upgrade times that are coming in. So it's going to be a whole different yep. experience. And then I'm sure at some point, you know, you'll see things swing back the other way again. It's just how it goes. Now, Airbus yep. over Boeing over McDonnell Douglas, you know, that we can get to well, a whole different conversation as, on that. As I remember uh, <laughs> saying before on this show, I was so desperate for a job. I'd have flown DC-3s in pink pajamas so long as I could get a you know a job, so I I would happily have flown anything to uh, to get uh, you know into an airline at the time. He would have even flown a Mad Dog. I would have loved to have flown a Mad Dog. I think, <laughs> I I think, think if Mad Dog, I, I hope we would have got on fine. You know, I I'm think gonna, that you would actually would really enjoy flying. I'm gonna I'm gonna f- now those folks that can't see the video. Oh. I have the MD-88 fly-by-wire. It's the first true fly-by-wire airplane right there. See? Well, I, I'm going to say the right flyer flew by wire, too. That <laughs> That's true. true. They just the same wires. They, they bent have. wings. Come on. They weren't flying by wire. They just uh, bent they wings. They have wires out to, the, wing to their warping. wing warping devices. And they had a, the same wires that we use. On our <laughs> <laughs> so they were flying took by them from spring. the <laughs> they they took them from the right flyer actually. Yeah, they probably did. Uh so you know what? I am so sad because we are beyond the point at which we uh, would normally try to stop the show. And there are so many other pieces of feedback that I really wanted to cover, including First Officer Steve has a couple of feedback items that used to be Captain Steve, by the way, but he's now First Officer Steve, flying for a large uh, freight operation. Um, Matt has something about he wants me to confess about turkey legs i'm not sure what that's all about and uh, we have some yeah yeah ivor had uh, sent in some feedback as well but you know what we're gonna have to save that for the next show because it's time for us to go and yeah poor nick is, is looking time. a little sleepy on the other side of the it's understandable you've been back to work and flying and that's true this. now we're keeping you up till <laughs> almost one o'clock in the morning hold on we need to keep them fresh so we can come over here to atlanta that's and have right. some fun that's right that's right yeah for, for that i need my sleep i need to get <laughs> so i didn't really go into a lot of details about the uh, columbus and uh, st louis layover i mean uh meetup things but Next again time. look at slack for that uh, again, um, the Columbus layover, uh, excuse me, meetup will be at Barley's at seven o'clock and in St. Louis, we're going to the, um, uh, chestnut urban brewery or something like that at, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. But again, we'll talk about it again on the next show. And if you want to learn more about the show, head over to the airline pilot guy website where you'll find information about the crew and the community and the store and so much more again that's airlinepilotguy.com and we have apps on the apple app store as well as the google google play store for android and we're also on social media stuff head over to twitter at apg crew is where you'll find us with all of our individual twitter information pinned to the top of that page you can also point your browser to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and interact with the community uh, in a bunch of different ways there stories and links and um, again sometimes some information about meetups so 
Hope to see you there. Yep. Absolutely. And we're also on Slack. Join our Slack team. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, one one Echo 1, and see you in Slack. And thanks so much, folks, for listening to our show, downloading it, uh, giving us great reviews, and being part of our community. I can't tell you how much that means to us, and we love you, and we hope to see you again next week when we do the next show. And until then, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Goodbye, everybody. Hasta la vista, baby. Good day.